Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Hi there, listeners. You have returned for another episode of Cycling in Alignment, and today's guest is none other than Trevor Connor. Trevor is the CEO of the Paleo Diet, and he is here to talk to us about that elephant in the room, the thing that we all want to know about, wheat. Trevor studied under Dr. Lauren Cordain at Colorado State University, and Dr. Cordain wrote the book, The Paleo Diet, and he also wrote the book, The Paleo Diet for Athletes. So Trevor's got a lot to say on this topic. His master's thesis is all about wheat and what it does to your digestive tract. And I'm going to give you the spoiler alert now. It's like an eight or ten headed hydra that travels through there and eats stuff and punches holes in walls and activates immune system function when we don't necessarily want it to be going. It's it's like Godzilla and Mothra and what there's like another evil eight headed hydra thing in that movie when all the monsters come from the nuclear era. It's like that. It's like all the monsters in your gut at once. Is that descriptive? So you're going to like this episode. Trevor and I bounce around a little bit about dietary philosophy. We talk about keto and carnivore and veganism. We talk a lot about gluten and specifically the challenges that it brings or wheat actually on the whole. And it gets a bit dense in about the second, third quarter of the episode. And if you want to dork out on that stuff, you'll really enjoy what Trevor has to say. Don't worry if you're not a science person. Uh, you're not going to get lost. Trevor does a great job of bringing it back to some relatable and understandable concepts. Without further prognostication, please enjoy my discussion with Trevor Connor. Trevor, Trevor Connor, welcome. Thanks for having me on the show again. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, it's been a little while. I think we've got some several potential shows we could uncork in the future but this is the first of that litany well we're talking about something today that uh favorite topic of mine looking forward to this and that topic is gluten that was my seth rogan voice because of some sort of weird internet law that i don't understand we can't put the quote that i wanted to put in here to start off our podcast but we are going to put a link in the show notes so if you listen to this podcast, you're required to click on that link and watch it because you will laugh. And the, the movie clip is from This is the End, and it's a scene where Seth Rogen is discussing what gluten is. And I won't spoil it with my best Seth Rogen. We'll just let you go find it. But it's pretty funny. It's pretty funny. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, it's, yeah, when I talk with people about gluten, uh, it's not too far off. It's this big, broad term that... Uh, people associate with, well, this, this is something evil, but right. they, they're, they're not sure what it is. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what I want to unpack. And you're the perfect guy to do that because you studied under Dr. Cordain at CSU and Fort Collins, and you wrote your master's thesis on gluten, right? And what it does to the gut. Is so that- actually I, my, my master's thesis was about wheat. Gluten was one part of that. Fair enough. Oh, there's our first learning point. I will tell you before I did my master's, I was, you know, I, I did a, a whole lot of undergrad courses in nutrition. And uh, I was one of those people who 
got all upset when people said, well, I've cut gluten out of my diet and go, well, there's not a bit of research on this. What, you know, mm-hmm. and get all upset. You know, why would you do that? You're just following a fad. Uh, kind of changed my tone because I have about 400 studies that I've read that show that wheat and gluten are not good for you. Okay. So, uh, the, yeah, the, this whole notion that there is no research behind this just ain't true. Total baloney. Yeah. Okay. So you can argue with the research, but there's a whole lot. Okay, cool. So maybe we can zoom out and paint a bit of a picture for our audience. Um, what's going on? I like to describe the digestive tract as a giant tube, right? Yes. And on one end of your tube, you've got your mouth. On the other end of your tube, you've got your anus. And we put food in that tube and our body's job is to discern what the good stuff is and what the bad stuff is. That's part of your, that's why you hear over and over again about how the immune system is connected to the gut. Well, we, where do we encounter foreign bodies that might invade our system and cause illness? It can be through the air we breathe, right? Through our lungs. Our body has to have a protective mechanism there on our skin. If you get a cut or even just touch dirt or touch whatever, uh, we don't want things to pass through the layer of your skin and get into your bloodstream and cause you illness or have to detoxify too much stuff. It's the same thing when you eat food and it goes in your mouth, right? So as we pass food into our mouth and through our stomachs, our body has a whole digestive process and then a a system of discernment, I'll say very broadly, to help figure out the bad critters from the good critters. And when the bad critters come in or the bad or the things that just aren't useful to our bodies, then it gets passed through and out into our stool or feces, right? So yeah, a couple really interesting facts uh, to think about when you're talking about that that tube, that digestive tract. Technically, your entire digestive system is external to your body. Right. Even though it goes from your, as you said, from your mouth to the other part of your body and uh, you you have this whole digestive tract inside your body, actually inside of your digestive tract is still external because any part of your body so you, you have barriers to the external world. So your your skin is an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's called this epithelial layer that has what are called tight junctions that makes it hard for anything to break through that barrier. Uh, just like your your skin, your whole digestive tract has this epithelial barrier mm-hmm. uh, that's designed to block anything from entry. So your system is very good at selecting what comes in. Mm-hmm. A pretty gross but accurate analogy that I was given when I was learning about all this is kind of think of your digestive tract like you, you, the pipes going from your toilet or your sink. Mm-hmm. They are filled with all sorts of nasty stuff, all sorts of bacteria, just like your, your digestive tract is. And somehow your body is really good at reaching into that kind of disgusting mess pulling out what you want and leaving what you don't want. Right. If everything's Uh, working properly. If everything is working correctly. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you have a whole lot of bacteria in your digestive system that actually are good for you as long as they stay in your digestive system. But there is a lot. There are more bacterial cells in your gut than there are cells in your body. Right, which is a great point, I think, um... That's something that people have really recently started to realize is that we're made up of more bacteria than we are, yeah. you know, air quotes, us. I remember reading this one study where they, I remember actually it was a study or a book, uh, 
But they made the comment that uh, really we evolved become homes of bacteria. Yes. That bacteria rule the world, not We're us. <laughs> bacteria mobile homes. And there's an old system of a down song about how your parasite drives your behavior. But I mean, there are a lot of people in the forefront of this realm of study who have started to recognize that the bacteria actually do influence our food choices. They influence our behavior, right? And we might have this big egoic response to that. Like, no, when I eat a cookie, damn it, it's because I want a cookie. But what do you think about that? Bacteria have a huge effect on us. And yes, you're right. In terms of our cravings, bacteria have an impact on that. So if you eat a, depending on what you eat, that's going to influence the composition of the bacteria in your gut. Mm. Uh, And the composition of the bacteria in your gut can change very rapidly. But if you are eating a lot of sugars, you're going to get one type of bacteria that thrive on sugar. And those bacteria can actually release chemicals that basically they know how to, to spark your cravings to say, because give me more sugar. They want to survive just like any other organism. Right. They want to be fed. And that's the more of those there are in your system, the more they're going to release those right. chemical signalers that are going to make you, your quotes, crave sugar. This is a really important point because it, like you hear people talk very superficially about diet and they're like, oh, well, I just had a really big craving for that. So I'm going to listen to my body because my body knows best. And I think that's a reasonable line of thought, but it's a bit misguided in this example because if you've been eating Twizzlers your whole life, then there are a lot of Twizzler-eating bacteria in your gut, and they're going to be talking to you. Is that Actually, everything I have read and learned about nutrition and digestion, uh, if you have a really big craving, it's usually not working in your favor. Hmm. Interesting. So there is that. There's the fact that the bacteria can actually influence your cravings. Another really important thing to think about is um, we evolved in a time of caloric scarcity, so it was always a a struggle to find food. Um, If you found something that was rare, that your body wanted or your body needed, your body would make you crave it a lot to kind of say, when you encounter this, eat it. Mm -hmm. Don't think twice about it. Survival mechanism. So it means anything that we have a strong craving for was actually very, very rare until recently. So the two things that we have the strongest cravings for are simple sugars and salt, mm. both of which were hard to come by. So we should eat some, but we shouldn't be feeding that craving all the time because we are designed to actually eat it quite sparingly. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that whole thing about, well, why is it that everything I crave is bad for me? That's kind of why. Right. It's not, it's in small quantities. No, it's not bad for you. Uh, we just have an availability that never existed until the last mm-hmm. you know, few hundred years, if, if that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As you said, we evolved in a time of food scarcity and particular things like sugar. I mean, where do you find sugar just roaming through a forest? Berries? Honey. Honey. Yeah. That's, but there aren't many examples. There's no Snickers bars yeah. in the forest. And you even talk about fruit. Fruit's got a, a fair amount of sugar. Not a ton, not as mm-hmm. much as we think. But we have modified fruit to make it much sweeter. You, if you look at more natural fruits, uh, they were much smaller. They weren't as sweet. They were often quite bitter. So, no, the, the, it was actually hard to come by simple sugars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a great point. I want to talk about the evolution of crops and specifically in the crop of wheat 
and ancient grains and hybridization of crops and differentiate between GMO and that your comment about fruit um, plays into that perfectly. But before we jump into that, maybe you can just tell us a little bit more specifically about your your studies and your master's thesis on wheat and gluten. So my master's thesis was looking at the effects of wheat on autoimmune illness. We had a little over 100 subjects who suffered from an autoimmune disease and had gone on a wheat-free diet to look at the impacts. And it was actually quite extraordinary, uh, some of the benefits you saw. Now, it was Certainly, there were some conditions where people stopped consuming wheat and they just completely went into remission, uh, particularly a lot of the digestive disorders. So mm-hmm. I didn't have anybody in the study with Crohn's, and Crohn's, they've said, you know, shown specifically mm-hmm. that's caused by wheat. But some of the other autoimmune diseases that were involved with the gut also saw quite dramatic uh, changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, removing wheat, diabetes showed improvement. Uh, there's two categories of autoimmune disease. So there's uh, organ-specific, then there is systemic autoimmune diseases. So diabetes would be an organ-specific. It attacks uh, the beta cells of your pancreas. Mm-hmm. Uh, lupus would be a systemic. It attacks multiple tissues, multiple organs. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that the systemic uh, autoimmune diseases are genetic. That you, you have, if you have the genes, you're you're going to get it. Unfortunately, uh, so we saw little improvement in the people who had systemic autoimmune disease. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. uh, but the people who had an organ-specific disease, yeah, we we saw a lot of improvements getting off of wheat. So is it generally conceded or thought right now that most you said most systemic autoimmune diseases are considered genetic or epigenetic. Uh, is that not the case for most organ-specific? Well, every disease know? has a genetic component. Right, of course. But but systemic, it's more, uh, there's actually appears to be a DNA defect. Mm. So it's kind of, you have those genes. So, sorry, with organ-specific, with most diseases, there's both a genetic component and an environmental. So you need to have mm-hmm. gen- genetic susceptibility, right. but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up with it. The, there has to be an environmental trigger. There are some diseases where that's not the case. You have the genetics, you're going to get the illness. Mm-hmm. And the systemic autoimmune diseases look more to be in, in that category. Right. So without maybe going too far down a wormhole, I just want to ask, you know, we're basing these sort of models of the causality of diseases, whether we're sort of placing the blame or the causation more on environmental factors or more on genetic factors. That's sort of based on the assumption that we mapped and understand all the, the genome. And that's an evolving science that's in the last even five years is just the level of knowledge has just gone up exponentially, correct? So do you think that, I mean, you did this, this work a long time ago. Um, do you think that our evolution or our understanding of the genome has changed some of that landscape and our understanding of how humans, how much actually is epigenetic or what's the nuance there in that field? Well, so genetic or epigenetic? Sorry, uh, please explain the difference. So genetics are your actual, the coding of your genes. Right. So if you look at, so we, we have these chromosomes, unless you're male, they're all X-shaped. If you're male, you have a a Y-shaped chromosome. But basically, they are a particular sequence uh, that define who you are as a person. 
So you, you see those pictures all the time of those little X's lined up with one another. The truth of the matter is they're enormous. They're a very, very big X. Um, and the only time you ever see them in that X shape is right before they split for cellular reproduction. Most of the time, they're bunched up into a little ball. So epigenetics is about how that ball is folded up. Because if there is a particular gene code that's in the middle of that ball, it's not going to express or very rarely express because it's just not exposed to your RNA and, and, and mRNA. Okay. I'm sorry, I got that slightly wrong, but I'm not going to go into the details there. If a gene is on the surface of that ball, it's going to express a lot more often. So mm. classic example of an epigenetic change is... Uh, when you're very young, the gene that codes for lactase, which can break down the sugars in milk, is on the surface. As we age, uh, as you get into your teen years, there are epigenetic changes that basically take that gene, move it into the center of the ball, mm -hmm. and you stop being able to produce lactase, or a lot of us stop losing our ability to produce lactase, and we can't really digest milk anymore. Uh, interesting. Okay. So there's a lot of those changes. There is, has been some arguments that basically aging, that's how aging is programmed, that just epigenetics change the folding of our genes mm -hmm. that cause some genes to be expressed more, some to be expressed less, and, and that results in, in changes in, in how you look and how you age. So some epigenetic change, uh, changes or refolding is, is pre-programmed. Some of it allows us to adapt to things very quickly. So actual genetic changes, changes in the sequence in your chromosomes, those evolutionary changes take a long time. Mm -hmm. There has been no major change in, in, in human genetics in over 10,000 years. Epigenetics allow us to adapt a little bit quicker because there now is evidence that uh, trauma, various events can cause a even your food choices can cause a refolding of those chromosomes to prioritize some genes over others mm -hmm. or rebunching up. Um, and you can inherit those. Mm -hmm. You can inherit them when you're your conceived parents. at that moment, then your, your epigenetics have a certain um, orientation, right? architecture, you might say. Right. Is that accurate? Okay. Yep. Okay. So that's epigenetics. It is a little more responsive. It can not only be passed, you know, change in one individual and be passed to another, but as I said, your epigenetics can change. Right. So, and you know, this is one of those arguments for exercise and, and good diet. There is evidence that exercise uh, causes more favorable bunching up of your genes mm -hmm. uh, to keep you a little younger, a little healthier. Mm -hmm. And what about emotion and how the experiences you're having in life that can influence epigenetics for sure right yes yep so there there is some evidence that traumatic traumatic events can cause mm -hmm. cause some refolding okay so and this this is a newer science that people are diving into and it's it's like gluten it's become this big term that people throw around a lot of people don't understand what it's about mm -hmm. but it, it, look it gets more complex than this but the simple way to think of it is your, your genes are actually quite long strings, and they can't really fit well in your cell if they're unfolded, so they just have to be literally wadded up into a little ball. Mm 
and how they're wadded up affects what of your particular sequences express and which don't. Interesting. So remember, the primary function of your genes, basically the sequences code for proteins. So your RNA comes in and basically reads a particular sequence, and there's markers on your chromosomes that say, here's the start, here's the finish. So it'll come and, and take that, that section of code and use that to literally build a protein. So again, uh, our, the RNA has to be able to access that particular sequence. So if that sequence is folded up inside the ball, RNA can't, uh, can't, get, to it. can't get to it and can't, as a result, create that protein. But it's still in there so that it might come out in the future depending on how you're regulating your lifestyle and what environmental factors you're yes. exposed you know, to. As I said, particularly with the little bit I've read about uh, epigenetics and, and aging, there's just some folding that's going to or, yep. or rebunching that's going to happen that you uh, can't do anything about. Right, right. But certainly there there are some things you can do. So it sounds like you just basically said we have little balls of yarn in all our cells. and we Quite literally. Optimize the shape of the balls. Yep. Upregulate the good stuff, downregulate the bad stuff. Right. Kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of fun. Cool. All right. So then back to your thesis for a moment. Um, you mentioned that your conclusion was that that wheat intake definitely has an influence on different autoimmune diseases, whether they're systemic or organ-based, right? Yeah, like I said, less on systemic, more on organ-based. Yep, yep. And uh, was this a meta-review, or these were studies that you and Dr. Cordain did? or th This was basically a giant case study. Okay. So originally we were going to do a review paper, and we decided to add the case study element. But the, the focus was the review paper. Mm -hmm. uh, and like I said, we, we had about 120, so originally 127 subjects. Uh, we ended up reporting on 80 of them. Okay. Uh, and yeah, we, we saw people that had quite uh, dramatic changes. My favorite one was uh, there was a woman who had a, a, an organ-specific autoimmune disease, and she decided to make this change to her diet. And so she sent to us all of her doctor's notes, records. And when she told her doctor about it, the doctor wrote in the notes, advised her strongly against this. This was a poor choice. It's going to, you know, basically, you're saying she's going to cause herself health issues, not eating wheat, mm. yada, yada, yada. And then the next report was like a year later and says, uh, basically said, you know, surprisingly, there's been no activity. She's still on this diet. I recommend it against the diet. I think this was just a uh, a quiet period, and, and it's going to get really bad again. Mm -hmm. And then it just kept going like this. And finally, the, the last report we had from the doctor was about three years later, and it was just a short note of patient remains in remission appears to correlate with change in diet. <laughs> that was it. Very quiet way to say, okay, you won. Exactly. Interesting. <laughs> Okay. So I love that. That's actually in the uh, the long version of my paper. We we put those quotes in. So yeah, we saw you know, it was quite enjoyable reading all these reports from people where the just eliminating this from their diet had okay. so improved their lives. Okay. So all right. Well, maybe we can expand the discussion a bit because I can imagine some of our listeners are thinking, "Well, I don't have an autoimmune disease, so therefore I can have as much pizza as I want." What are your thoughts on that line of thought? So this is a. a conversation I have a lot. So as a matter of fact, I, I ended up writing a few articles summarizing my, my thesis in a little more lay terms. And I started with this. The The argument I get all the time is, well, I've always eaten it. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. 
So you know, my, my grandmother, who lived to 97, yep. uh, when I was writing my thesis, she just she asked me what it was about, and I was like, well, that's ridiculous. She said that? We, yeah, she's like, wheat's fine. She's like, I've been eating it my whole life. Mm-hmm. Now, she lived to 97. She didn't live healthily to 97. So I have always made the argument that changes in her diet, she would have lived a, a healthier life. Uh, and sorry, this is probably another thing you're, you're going to ask about, so I just want to clarify. When you are talking about health sciences, there is mortality and there is morbidity. And it's important to understand the difference. Mortality is how long you live, so a, age of death. And a lot of the research I have read on it says you can change it a bit, but that's mostly genetically coded. You're, you're going to live as long as you're going to live. Now, you could shorten it, but you can't extend it all that much. Is that age of death and of natural causes, we'd say? Obviously not. There's just a, a certain age you're, you're just not yeah. going to live past. Yeah. So the goal here is not as much longevity. There's a little you can do. Uh, you know, the longest a human has ever lived, and this is being contested right now, is 121. So next guest, Dave Asprey, right? Dave Asprey is the bulletproof guy. He said publicly many times his goal is to live. I think he's up to 275 now. He's like, he is the guy who is all in on these every biohacking technique you can possibly imagine and multiple ones you haven't imagined. He is in on to live forever for to live as long as he possibly can. I think it's cool. I maybe he said 175. I don't, I'm probably misquoting him, but it's something that it, it is far and away above what even the most contested longest living human is at this point. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, we won't see if he does it because I won't be here. I won't either. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, they're, they're age or mortality. There are some things you can do for the most part. It just kind of is what it is. Um, Morbidity is the age of the onset of chronic illness. So that we can have a big influence on. And up until very recently, generally what you saw was age of morbidity was very close to age of mortality. You tended to live a pretty healthy life. Uh, Chronic illness would set in and you, you would die a few years later. Well, the issue that we're having in modern society right now is age of mortality has gone up a little bit. Not a lot. It's gone up a little bit. But age of morbidity is coming way down. And now mm-hmm. you're seeing decades where people have chronic illness. And this is putting a huge stress on the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. More importantly, people are not living good lives. And this is a, aside from COVID, right? Outside right. of that data, which has obviously right. will move the needle some too. Yeah, and unfortunately, we've, we've been too quick to accept all this. There's mm-hmm. just this belief you, you hit your 40s, you're going to start having heart conditions and all these other things. Mm-hmm. You're, you're going to probably have cancer at some point in your life. Uh, all these yeah. things that we think are just part of natural aging, they're not. They're actually very recent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I want to just rewind what for a moment to that comment you made about your grandma and how she said, oh, you know, that paper's ridiculous. I've lived to 97 or I've lived my whole life and eaten wheat. And I think that's a pretty important point to to make uh, you hear this discussion all the time people what do people do they read science or they hear about science and then they apply it to their own lives and they look around for data that either supports that scientific claim or refutes it and i mean we've all probably know someone who 10 15 years ago said oh smoking's not bad for you that's ridiculous uh, or maybe it was 20 years ago at this point 
you know, I, my grandpa smoked a pack a day for his whole life and he lived to be, you know, 94 or whatever. And that's a basic flaw in logic. And I'm sure most people are aware of this, but I just have to point this out. This is an instantial generalization. You can't take one single person who smoked a pack for 97 years of their life and, you know, whatever, chopped wood or ran up and down, you know, mountains or whatever they did that was exceptional and say, that applies to everyone because humans are all individuals and we can always find one or two rule breakers who are people who do everything wrong and still live to be a certain ripe old age. Science is the law of the bell-shaped curve. Mm -hmm. So the, the classic example is height. Uh, most people are somewhere between, say, I don't actually know the exact numbers, but I'd say somewhere between about five foot five and, and six foot two. So that is the, the peak of the bell-shaped curve. Does that mean that there are some people who are four feet tall and some people who are over seven feet tall? Yes. Do you make decisions based on the one seven-foot-tall person you met? No, you don't. Right. Or the so, four-foot part. Yeah. Right. So this is why door frames are, I think they're right around six-foot-three, six-foot-four, because most people can fit underneath. If you're that seven-foot-tall person, you learn to duck a lot. Yes. Yeah. And if so, you're that four foot tall person, you learn how to negotiate chairs that aren't made so that you can your feet can touch the ground. So in terms of diet, yes, there are outliers. There is somebody out there who the healthiest diet they could eat would be to go to McDonald's every day. Mm. And, and they're going to live a very long, healthy, happy life. If you're that one in one, seven billion pe person, <laughs> lucky you. Right. I wouldn't count on it. Right. And if you know that person, don't think it applies to you. What would you really say that would be the healthiest diet they could use or that they're such high-level compensators they can basically tolerate anything? Different points. Don't know. Uh, I'm actually going to say, I think there are a lot of people who can tolerate. There's probably one person out there that this is that would be probably optimal. pretty healthy for them. Huh. Look, if we eat this food long enough, what genetics say is we will eventually evolve. Bread and McDonald's and all this stuff will actually be a healthy diet for if us. If we don't die first. Well, <laughs> if the whole race doesn't go extinct yeah. from... The problem is, Ding -dong consumption. A, we've missed that boat you know, to, to get to that point where this is a healthy diet for us. This is probably 100,000 years down the road. Ah, no so problem. Doesn't really apply to us. Right. Lucky people in 100,000 years. So, <laughs> so it's like a herd immunity argument. You could be like, well, I'm eating yeah. McDonald's for my, my future, 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 dot, 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 to the end, whatever, grandchildren, so they can enjoy McDonald's. I'm yes. <laughs> paving the way for the human race. And I have my Soylent in my... Good. Uh, impossible burger. Good for you to make that sacrifice. <laughs> so <laughs> obviously that's, yeah, kind of a, a non-starter for us. So going back to, to what you were asking, mm -hmm. the argument is always, I am fine, but we don't really know what fine is. And actually, if you look at ethnographic data, what was fine when we're eating something closer to a, a healthy diet versus mm -hmm. what is fine now, I'm going to say we're not fine. We're just accepting not fine as just the way everybody is. Mm. Like I said, what we think of as natural aging, that's a recent phenomenon. It is, it is not the way people naturally aged. Yeah. So you know, another example I, I love to give is uh, you, know, you look at uh, Novak Djokovic who uh, tennis player, had the most successful tennis season ever uh, the year he went gluten-free. Mm. So he, he was a good tennis player before that. He was just a much better tennis player. Mm, that was the magic bullet. But again, that's an instantial generalization, and we have 
and I'm not saying your example is invalid at all. Uh, I think there are plenty of examples of that. The, the downside of that logic is we have movies like The Game Changer where there's a massive amount of controversy about this film and there are a lot of criticism, heated debate on both sides. Everybody's you know, carrying their sword and got their shield and ready to go to battle on this one. So I don't want to stir up that hornet's nest, but what I'll say is that I think there's pretty clear arguments on both sides that the movie had, it it appeared ostensibly as uh, something that looked for fact-finding and found those facts. But from my perspective watching the movie, it was more about having an agenda to get across and clearly... And it's, it's a film. I mean, there's nothing wrong with this. No one at the start of it explicitly said we have a neutral viewpoint. But my point is the movie was a big, basically a giant commercial for veganism. I love good scientific arguments, even when it's, it's counter to something I've been saying. Uh, I will always listen to a good scientific argument. I Look, as I said, I was one of those people that got angry whenever anybody said I, I go gluten-free. It was a tough, forgive the pun, uh, cookie for me to bite into. <laughs> Uh, to do all this research and go, oh, well, actually, yeah, gluten's pretty bad for you. Wheat's mm. pretty bad for you. Mm. Uh, I eat a lot of crow. I never mind doing that when the science points that way. The one thing I will say about Game Changers was there was one point where they said, and there's a lot of scientific research to back what we are saying, and then they flashed on the screen three studies mm-hmm. very quickly. It actually took me a – so I sat there with the pause button. It took me a while to be able to pause in all three studies mm-hmm. to read the titles – I went and read all three studies. All three studies said the exact opposite of what the movie said they said. Interesting. So they, that bothered me, that mm-hmm. they quoted three studies and said, this backs us, and you go and read those studies and go, no, actually, those studies don't back you at all. Mm-hmm. They say the exact opposite, so you just flat out lied to people. Mm-hmm. That bothers me about the movie. Mm-hmm. Paul Trek talks a lot about this and the difference between you know, the spirit of true science, which is just as you mentioned, like... We're going to dig into an issue. We're going to see if we can sort things out clearly. We're going to have a hypothesis. If that hypothesis is either proven or not, a true scientist will eat some crow and look at it and go, I was wrong about this. This is what the numbers show. This is what the data tells us. That's the spirit of science. But in today's era, it's almost as if science has become a new church in some respects. People, you hear people say in internet forums all the time and on Twitter and Instagram, like, well, Show me the double blind study, you know, and there are a lot of things that we cannot double blind. There's a lot of questions about the universe that are undouble blindable. I mean, show me a double blind study that shows that proves that I love my wife or doesn't. You can't do that, but I know it. I don't need a study. So people have replaced a lot of their own intuition and understanding with this craving for science. I'm not saying science is useless at all. It teaches us a lot of valuable things, but the challenge comes when People who are air quotes scientists are actually hired by companies and they're more technicians who can do research that is precise, but then mold and craft the results and then produce a white paper, for example, or in some cases, even a study that is published in a journal, but it's got a heavy bias. What do you think about that whole equation? You always have to publish your bias. Good journals, No, there's a whole peer review process where other scientists are going to read this. And if they detect the bias, if they go, you can't draw the conclusions you're drawing, this this has been biased, a good journal is going to refuse it. Mm -hmm. So part of this is knowing the the journals to to trust and which not to trust. Um, A really important thing to remember about science, this this is one of the ways you can tell a good scientist. A good scientist is never going to tell you something is absolutely true. 
Mm. And politicians jump on this. So the the whole uh, is global warming real? Right. Is the environmental change happening? You you get all these politicians going. Well, we talked to all these scientists, and no scientist would would state that this is a fact. Mm. That's because they're good scientists. There is no such a thing as fact in science. There is only theory. Everything is a hypothesis. Everything is a theory. Everything can be disproved. We're constantly testing those hypotheses and continue uh, always, to expand our sphere of knowledge. Right? I always love to point out we threw out gravity. Right. <laughs> Even that was disproved. So Newton had a theory of gravity that we used for mm -hmm. hundreds of years, and Einstein came along and went, oops, sorry, mm -hmm. you got it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so everything is, is a hypothesis, and mm -hmm. everything can be disproved. And a good scientist is always open to that. Either their, their theory can be improved or it can potentially be thrown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, you have to be open to that. And one of the ways I immediately know not to trust somebody is when they start pounding their fist and just go, this is fact. Mm. Um, and again, that's why I, I had my issues with the game changer movie. They were really pounding their fist going, this is fact. This is proved by science. And I go, no, you obviously didn't have good scientists that were helping you here because mm. any, if this was a good analysis of the science. You'd be showing both sides, saying there's gray areas here. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, this is this is what we think is true, but it's, our, it's our, our theory. What bothered me about it is how many people were talking about the movie and completely just hook, line, and sinker took it to be what it proclaimed to be, which was that truth. To me, it smelled the whole time of agenda. It smelled of that fist pounding that you're talking about. But so many people I know just were like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going meat free for a while because I watched this movie and it just completely shifted my paradigm. I was like, yeah. wow, how did you not see this? And it just speaks to the power of media and and being, as you said, you kind of have to know the journal that you're getting your science from. It's the same problem when we turn on the TV and we want to have some news. I'd like to have some objective news, please. Something that's a little neutral, not biased, not swayed towards one side or the other. You know, we don't have to go all Fox or all CNN or all whatever, you know, pick your channel. Ideally, I'd like just some news, please. But, of course, it's always filtered through human experience and yep. and to some degree human agenda. Well, look, I guess we're going a little bit down that, that wormhole. I'll, I'll tell you the couple issues I had with it. So they, the the big, oh, my God, moment in that, that movie was when they had those three athletes and, and took blood samples from them and... Uh, showed that some some of their blood was the the plasma was murky mm -hmm. and, and the other guy was clear. So first issue with that, the two guys admitted that they pretty much ate fast food. The other guy admitted he was a vegan and ate quite healthy. That's poor experimentation right there. Mm -hmm. You don't have a study <clears throat> where you experiment with somebody's diet where you have people who eat different diets. You you would start with a group of people who have pretty homogenous in their diet and then say, now we're going to, so this group we're going to modify this way, this group we're going to modify that way, this group we're going to leave as uh, you know, kind of our, our base. We're not going to modify and, mm -hmm. and then take a look at them. You don't bring in somebody who's, you know, look, if you're eating fast food all the time, I'm going to say, yes, a vegan diet is much healthier. So you don't bring in somebody who's like, I'm really careful about my diet and, and I'm a vegan and start comparing them, you know, bring mm -hmm. in two guys that eat fast food, make one change to their diets and go, look at the effects. Right. Can't make those conclusions. Right, right, right. Second of all, they showed that well, the the one blood 
you know, they, they ate meat and they showed, well, the one blood was mur- or was clear, the guy didn't eat meat, and the other two uh, samples of blood were murky. Whoever said clear plasma was what you want? Right. It's a transport mechanism. It's supposed to have stuff in it. Mm. What causes the murkiness is, is lipids. Mm-hmm. Uh, an out-of-control diabetic whose insulin is out of control, they're not going to release any lipids into their blood. Right. They're going to have very clear. That doesn't mean they're healthy. Right. Actually, out-of-control diabetes, you're yeah. dying. Right. But you've got very clear plasma. Right. So, so we have to interpret the context of that very carefully. Right. Obviously, if their blood's flooded with lipids from Big Macs, that's not ideal lipid, but I get your point. Is Yeah. Yeah. So then they flashed some studies that that pointed that, that they said back this. And as I said, I looked at those studies, and one of those studies was like, yeah, actually made that point about, look, you know, clear plasma mm-hmm. can be a sign of issues. Right. Right, right, right. So, yeah, they uh, that, that was just an example of a really poorly designed study to have a wow impact on people mm-hmm. when it didn't, you know, didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. It didn't certainly didn't say what they were trying to say, and it, it was just poorly designed. Okay. So, cool. Thanks for explaining that stuff. Um, maybe we can. I want to ask you another question about gluten and specifically gluten-containing foods in yep. endurance athletics, or and we can maybe briefly outline you know wheat and then other foods that contain gluten, just so people have a clear understanding, because I think it's. Sometimes people don't always get how much gluten there is in different foods aside. They think of a giant plate of pasta and that's it. But that said, I want to paint just a brief picture of context to make sure people understand a little bit about where you're coming from. You've given us a lot of info. But just so people know, Trevor is now the CEO of the Paleo Diet. He studied studied under Dr. Lauren Cordain at CSU who wrote the book, The Paleo Diet. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the synopsis, synopsis of the philosophy of this diet is simply that as our we have evolved in the modern era over the last 10,000 years, our ancestors, that's about how long the genome takes to evolve to dietary change. Is that fair? Takes a long time. Last major human evolutionary change was about, uh, about 12,000 years ago. 12,000, okay. So right around the same time that we just started introducing agriculture. And really, mm-hmm. agriculture wasn't... Uh, extensive in humans until around 8,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. So basically the, the idea here is we evolved around a particular diet that is optimal for us. And a lot of the foods that we eat now, about 70% of the foods that we eat now were introduced since then. Right. Now there has been some arguments about when some of this stuff appeared, but the fact of the matter is a lot of these foods that are quite unhealthy for us were really only introduced in the last couple hundred years. Right. We're talking about hydrogenated oils, right? Yep. You know, the highly processed foods. Highly processed foods, simple sugars. Pepperoni. You know, even when you talk about wheat, yes, they had crops, but it was actually very hard through most of history uh, to grind down and, and, mm-hmm. and make wheat edible. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a bit of a, a luxury item for a long time. Only, only the wealthy ate it. It wasn't until uh, we came... Uh, was a steel mill processing. I'm blanking on the exact term for it, but we, the the ability to mass produce flour didn't really appear until the mid 1800s. So eating bread in the quantities that we do now mm-hmm. is really a very modern thing. So before the steel mill processing of wheat enabled us to get 
that crop out to more people and in much more practical sense, you were literally taking wheat, putting it probably in a giant mortar and pestle and hand grinding it. Is that fair? Yeah, into you're flour? stone grinding. Stone grinding it. So yeah. they, a lot of mills would do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was hard to mass produce it. Right. So you could make a loaf for your family or maybe a few loaves yeah. for your tribe, but there was no selling yeah. of bread at a market. It would no, be the, too impractical. There was even evidence that they figured this out uh, about 14,000 years ago. It, it was very laborious. And so it was just like something they would do once or twice per year for ceremonial purposes. Mm-hmm. But the, the, there was a small amount of, of eating of, of these sorts of crops. But that's still, even then, most of our evolutionary changes had occurred right. by that point. Right, right, right. Uh, okay. And yeah, so they introduced, I mean, the interesting thing that, that was recently, or not recently, but uh, I'm trying to think of the study that had this. I didn't come with this study. Uh, but they, they have done research on the stature of humans. And you see right around the time that we introduced uh, farming, so crops, uh, grain crops, you saw a significant drop in human stature. So we came about six inches shorter on average. Interesting. And what time frame are we talking about? So this is particularly looking at, uh, this is would have been about eight 8,000 years ago. Okay. That you start to when they were really starting to uh, ramp up agriculture. And what types of grain. crops are we talking about specifically? So this was grains. So you corn, a variety of grain products. No corn. So first of all, uh, remember it's actually maize. It's not corn. Right. Okay. Corn is actually just a term for the primary staple crop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so corn it actually refers to something different over in England, is my understanding. Okay. So what we call corn is actually maize. Uh, And that uh, was discovered in North America, or it it, uh, appeared in North America. Mm -hmm. So in terms of anybody with Western origins, uh, corn wasn't introduced to the diet until about, what, four or 500 years ago? Mm -hmm. It's a very recent addition. So they would have done things like, they, they would have done wheat, barleys, some of what they call the ancient grains. I don't refer to them as ancient grains because they were all introduced to our diet right? From evolu- in an evolutionary standpoint in very recent years. Well, it's like this. Dry- my, my daughter studies a, lot, studies a lot of art. She's an art history major at Wellesley, and I had this discussion with her not too long ago about how, to me, it's like modern art, postmodern art. Like who was the brainiac who named that period? Because yes. modern art is now ancient to us or old. <laughs> so what do we call it now? You know, post postmodern art, more yeah. modern art. Like yep. The naming just doesn't make any sense. It's always assuming that we're on the horizon of humanity, but there's nothing in the future. Same thing. I guess we're making the same point with ancient grains, right? It depends on your time frame. What does ancient mean? Does it mean a thousand yes. years ago or does it mean 50,000 years ago? Cause we could discuss, you could use the adjective ancient to describe a dinosaur different to use ancient to describe a dinosaur than it is to describe an ancient grain of wheat, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, so this is another thing people hear, oh, ancient grain, it must be really healthy for you. Just like organic is healthy. Well, okay, let's unpack that. I think that's a great point. But uh, before we do that, if we can rewind to our our, our bullet points here. Is that all right? Okay, cool. So look at me staying on track. (laughs) How unusual. Okay, so we're all athletes. We all like to go ride our bikes or run up mountains or swim the oceans or swim the pools, right? We do the things. We lift the weights. 
And in order to fuel that machine, of course, we need carbohydrates. Now I'm talking about the standard food pyramid line of thought here, and we can get into the keto, not keto discussion. But before we get there, let's talk about carbohydrates on the whole and how they are used in athletic performance for the moment, assuming that that is a air quotes, good thing, a good fuel source. And I'd love to hear your commentary on that. We have so many carbohydrate sources that do contain gluten and those that don't. So maybe we can discern a little bit about where the gluten's hidden and so, so forth. This is a question I get a lot yeah. of, if you don't eat bread, where right. do you get your carbohydrates? Right. Uh, people seem to feel that bread and grain products are, are synonymous with carbohydrates. They're not. Carbohydrates are a nutrient. They're found in a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, the So if you want to... I don't ever like doing this, but foods tend to get broken up into this is a protein. So when you talk about meats, people go, well, this is a protein. Right. <laughs> when you talk about breads, breads are a carbohydrate. Right. Fruits and vegetables, if you want to simplify it that much, are also carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. And I think they are much better sources of carbohydrates. You're right. I, I am a, an athlete. I, I do a lot of training on the bike. Mm -hmm. uh, I stopped eating grains and my performance improved. And I never struggled with the how are you getting enough carbohydrates? I actually, so uh, I am not a believer in a, a no or very low carbohydrate diet. So something okay. like the keto, we've actually written against that. I think it's too extreme. I'll give you my short uh, opinion. I am not into macronutrient ratios at all. I think we've gone off track trying to get into this. Is high carb or low carb better good for you? Is high mm -hmm. fat, low fat good for you? Is high protein, low protein good for you? You get. Mm -hmm. I look at that evolutionary perspective, and and hunter gatherer societies buried mm -hmm. tend to eat higher fat and protein in the winter because there weren't a lot of plants around. Tend to eat higher carbohydrate in the summer. If you live closer to the equator, you ate a lot of carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. uh, if you lived in very northern regions, you tended to eat a lot of fat and protein. So there was a lot of variance. There was no one carbohydrate to protein to fat ratio. And I, I do think we need to vary it. So I'm much more into what foods are healthy, what foods are unhealthy. Great. So. Yeah. Um, I recently read a book by an author, Joel Green, called The Immunity Code. And he makes a really good point in that book, which is that when people think about macronutrients, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, they tend to talk in what he refers to as baby talk. Right. It's like carbohydrates. Right now, what's demonized at the moment, carbs are bad. But in the 80s, in the 70s and 80s, fat was bad. Fat was the bad thing. And then protein became the bad thing, especially red meat. Red meat equaled heart disease. We were told that over and over again in the 80s and 90s, right? Now, carbs are the bad thing. You know, and it's like in Step Brothers, the brother's are like, I haven't had a carb since 2009. And then they throw in an ab model and he shows his abs and they're all ripped. And <laughs> Brennan Huff and, and uh, I can't remember John, John C. Riley's character are like, whoa. But anyway, so... So that, that again gets to your uh, N of one. You yeah. Know, it's not as, look, I could, I'll make this claim. It's not going to be fun at all, but I can get something, somebody down to a pretty skinny weight eating nothing but McDonald's. It's right. not healthy, but you, you can you, do it. Right, 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 right. So skinniness does not equal health. Right. And there are a lot of different ways to, we'll say, skin a cat. Yes. But the other thing about the macronutrient perspective that you shared, you know, you said a lot of people look at, it's a steak. It's a protein. That's way too 50,000 foot view, right? I mean, it's just like metabolism. From the moment you ride out your driveway at 100 watts, you are burning 
you're, you are using glycolytic energy, just a very, very, very small amount of it. We don't have hard lines in metabolism where you stop right. burning carbs and start burning fat or cross your anaerobic threshold and you're 100% anaerobic from there on. It's not the way the body works. It's all blended together in scales. And it's the same thing. You can find carbohydrates in a steak. You find fats and proteins in a steak. Now, what? so what we're doing when we call steak a protein is we're vastly oversimplifying the macronutrient profile of that meat or that food. Yeah. But we don't eat carbohydrates. We eat food. Yes. Right? Yeah, the fact of the matter is even there, you know, we call a steak a protein. Most of the steaks that you buy at the grocery store, it would be better to call them a fat than a protein. Right. <laughs> right. So. Depends on the cut you're eating, but yeah. 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 So whenever you go to the grocery store and you see that you know, 85% lean, they are talking by That's weight. water weight. Right. Right. Including water weight. But if you do it by calories, yep. very different. So an 85% steak, uh, the steak that's 85% lean by calorie, I, I think it's like 50. It's closer 50. to 50. Right. Yeah. So just so people understand, that's when you include the water weight, water doesn't have calories, but it influences the weight. So it it changes the percentages yeah. um, when they when they refer to that in the case, the meat case, you look at the 85% lean. So just understand what you're buying. Yeah, it's also important to remember that uh, fat is more calorically dense. Right, So of a gram of fat's gonna have a lot more calories, Nine calories than a gram of, roughly. of protein. Right, protein and carbs are about four calories per gram, right? Yeah. So where fat is nine. Right, right, right. A great resource on this, if you wanna navigate the uh, Death Star Trenches of the Grocery Store with some success is a book we'll put a link to in the show notes. Uh, it's by a Czech colleague of mine. His name is Eugene Trufkin. Uh, I think the I think it says Yevgeny on his on his um, on the book title. It's called The Anti Factory Farm Shopping Guide by Yevgeny Trufkin. And this is a great, super actionable way for you to not be overwhelmed in a grocery store, understand and decode some of the labels, in particular, not just labels on boxed foods, but Eugene's talking about labels on meat. When you go to the counter and it says grass-fed, and it says level two, level three, level four, protection, and you're reading a little description, when you see eggs that say vegetarian-fed versus cage-free versus organic, Eugene decodes all these labels and talks about what they really mean. And spoiler alert, you might not end up shopping so much in a grocery store after you read this book because you realize how much liberty a lot of manufacturers are taking with these labels. He helps explain that. But the guide is, it's a very small book and it's like a super easy reference. You can even take it with you in your pocket or your purse or your man purse or whatever and, and break it out and decode what's happening at the deli counter. And it's a really powerful resource. He's also got a lot of YouTube videos that link with that book. So anyway, just a good way for people to uh, hack their way through the grocery store. One more point I wanted to mention, Trevor, is something you touched on. And this is a bit of a resource that Paul Check uses to teach in his line of, of education, which is about, uh, you mentioned sort of people who come from colder climates tend to eat less vegetables, fruits and vegetables, because they're in a colder climate and you can't grow a lot of that stuff in those climates typically unless you're doing it in a greenhouse. And this gets back to the metabolic typing diet. And there's a book about this. And I, I would imagine that the paleo diet philosophy and the metabolic typing philosophy diet philosophies are quite cohesive. But the concept is really that when you understand a bit about your genetic heritage or lineage, and you understand what part of the world your ancestors came from, it's not rocket science to figure out, at least a very, in a very general sense, what foods are going to work from you, for you. And it's 
in my experience, it's been pretty insightful for people to take this test. I'll put a link. There's a free test online you can take. I think it's 60 or 75 questions. And it tries to get to, in a very actionable way, how foods make you feel and bring you into awareness of how a food um, either impacts your body positively or maybe not so much. And then you can help figure out what your metabolic typing diet is. And broadly speaking, really broadly, there are two categories. There's a fast oxidizer and a slow oxidizer. The fast oxidizer is someone who is from a colder climate or what we refer to as a polar type. And they would do better on higher fat meats, meats, uh, more amine rich meats. So that means you're eating the dark flesh of the chicken and the skin usually, and maybe some of the cartilage. And you're doing better with things like avocados and nuts and um, fattier fishes would be your natural choice if you're plugged into how this makes you feel. And then the opposite of that is someone from a warmer climate, a tropical climate, and they're going to be from a more hot weather environment. So they're going to have more access to fruits and vegetables. They're also going to do better with more, a slightly higher percentage of carbs in their diet. So they might be able to eat a mango and not have a sugar crash. They might be able to eat um, more start, starchier foods in, of course, in moderation always, but they won't do as well with fattier foods. If they eat a fattier cut of fish, they're going to feel like someone put a brick in their stomach and feel sluggish. And when people have this insight, if they've been eating kind of air quotes the wrong way or more suboptimally for their metabolic type, their lineage, then when they have that insight, they can, it can really open up a lot of channels to having less inflammation, better energy, you know, less afternoon crashes and naps and better sleep, a host of other things, right? Yeah, I mean, you're getting into a really complex subject, and certainly these things can help. You know, the, the things that complexify this are, A, remember, we're all essentially mutts at this point. You're yeah. totally right. I, yeah. I always find it funny that when you think about dogs, you know, a, a, a thoroughbred is really expensive, and you, you're kind of insulted a mutt. But a thoroughbred is the equivalent of people that just breed with their brothers and sisters. Their whole family lived in Germany for... Right. On both sides. So actually, for a genetic standpoint, being a, being a thoroughbred isn't necessarily the best thing in the world. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But um, yeah, we're all at this point kind of mutts. We have lineage from everywhere. So it is a little bit hard yep. to, to say, well, you know, my lineage is from here. My lineage is from there. The, you, you can do some. Um, I took a whole course on nutrigenetics, which is the study of uh, genetics impact on diet. And basically the sum total of that course was, this is so insanely complex, it'll be 200 years before we understand this. So right. if you read anywhere, you know, send us a small blood sample and we'll tell you the optimal diet for your genetics, mm -hmm. they don't know. Right. We In that course, there were only three things that they could say definitively we can do a genetic test and tell you should or shouldn't eat this. Mm. And what were those three things, just out of curiosity? I'm trying to remember now. That was a long time ago. A few years ago. Okay. One of them was related to, to fat. So it was the aloe, particular uh, aloe protein that you code for, mm -hmm. uh, which affects your, your uh, the. So we talk about cholesterol. You're actually talking about not cholesterol itself, but the carrier. So high density versus low density, it's, it's the carrier, which is a, a lipid. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, we have identified the genetics in terms of propensity towards uh, very low density, low density, high density. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you have a particular variant, you got to be a little careful about what you eat. Okay. So that was one that I remember. I'm trying to remember the other two. They'll come to me in a, in a bit. Okay. But I really just left that class going, 
it would be great. The, this would be really valuable, but probably won't be in my lifetime that we'll figure this out. Yeah, interesting. So that's why I've kind of tended towards, well, we're all mutts. We can't really do that genetic analysis. You have to experiment with yourself and have leaned, even though I'm always, as a coach, I'm always talk about the positives. Don't talk about the negatives. Mm-hmm. Kind of take a negative approach to diet of, we know the things that were recently introduced to our diet, which we haven't genetically adapted to, and we're going to be healthy if we, healthier if we just eliminate those. Or minimize. Right. You might say, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's discuss some alternatives. I mean, you said you're an athlete, right? You you consume carbohydrates. Can you give our audience some examples of the specific sources of carbohydrates you would include on a day where you know you're going to do a bunch of hard intervals? Yeah. So look, there's also a um, there's a performance versus health factor. And I, I will yeah. fully admit to you, I weigh that. Mm-hmm. I want to be as healthy as possible, but there are certain points where I go... Performance is more important. Are we back on Swedish fish then? Yeah, back on Swedish fish. Now, <laughs> the biggest, one of the, the most negative impacts you get from simple sugars is that they spike your insulin. And if you're constantly eating simple sugars, you become desensitized to insulin, and that leads to diabetes and a whole host of other conditions. Mm-hmm. That insulin response doesn't happen when it's you're exercising blunted hard. on exercise. Right. That's so, a really common misconception. I think people are like, oh, if you have that Coke, you're going to crash. Nope. No, that's not how it works. Not how it works if at you all. crash, it's because you bonked and the coke ran out, right? It's not because your body produced a big yep. rush of insulin to consume. Why is that though? It's because your body's consuming sugar at such a voracious rate because the engine's running, correct? It's yeah. Well, your body's actually really smart. So insulin is non-selective, meaning if you are sitting there on your couch, you eat some sugar, insulin gets spiked, and insulin's basically telling all the cells in your body take up the sugar. Uh, now your brain always has the ability to just kind of take it up because your brain needs sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even those people out there who are, are avid followers of the keto diet go, no, they don't. You can, your brain can live on ketones, sort of. Mm. Your brain can use ketones, but even if you are not eating carbohydrates and consuming a very fatty diet and consuming ketones, your your liver actually converts a lot of those ketones to carbohydrates because your brain just needs a certain amount of glucose. Mm-hmm. So, um, but basically when insulin spikes, it it causes cells throughout your body to take up sugar. When you are exercising hard, your body goes, well, the exercising muscles need it more. Basically your brain and whatever muscles are exercising need it more. Mm -hmm. Uh, right now digestive tract, some other parts of your body don't really need it. So, Mm -hmm. uh, insulin isn't the way to get cells to take up the glucose that you're consuming. We want it to be more targeted. So muscle cells have this amazing ability that when they exercise, they can start to take up sugar independent of, of insulin. So I'm, t- I'm trying not to go too deep in the weeds, but mm-hmm. there's a transporter called a GLUT4 transporter that needs to be at the surface of the cells. It transports the sugar from the blood into a cell. The GLUT4 transporters typically live inside the cell, so the cell can't take up any, any sugar. The only two things that promote GLUT4 to go to the surface of the cell and start absorbing sugar are either insulin or exercise. So when you're exercising, mm-hmm. um, the muscles that are doing the activity get the priority for, for all that glucose. And so you want to shut down that insulin response because if the muscles are promoting GLUT4 and insulin is also promoting GLUT4 to the surface, uh, you get 
too much uptake of the glucose and you get a, a condition called reactive hypoglycemia. Mm. You, you start going kind of foggy-headed, mm -hmm. lightheaded, and uh, it's because your brain's not getting enough glucose and you're in trouble. So that's why a lot of people have to, they tell you to, before a race, before an event, before intervals, be really careful about when you eat because if you eat, say, about 45 minutes before an event, uh, let's say you eat something really, uh, really sugary, you're going to spike that insulin. That insulin takes time to clear, so then if you start a race, even though the insulin response is still promoted, all that insulin is still in your system. In your system, now the muscle cells are, are because of their their activity are promoting glucose forward to the surface, and you get reactive hypoglycemia. Yep, I'm sure I've experienced that time at times where this happens to me on like long bike rides when we go for a coffee stop, and the coffee stop's a little too long. Yep, and I get back on the bike. And sometimes for 10 or 15 minutes, I'm super dizzy and out of it and spacey, and I basically can't go. Would you, is that your explanation of what's going on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's basically it. Yep. So these are the uh, things to be aware of, experiment mm -hmm. with, and, and be careful of. Mm. Um, so me personally, I will get most of my carbohydrates from fruits and vegetables. If I'm just doing a, a, a regular easy ride, I'm fine with that. Yeah. Uh, if I'm getting ready for a race, if I'm doing intervals, that's where, yes, during the activity, I'm going to break out some candy. I love candy. Uh -huh. It's horribly bad for me, but I, but I love candy. And that's where I go, well, I might favor performance here mm -hmm. and, and eat those foods. So, okay, just to break that apart, <clears throat> two points I would like to discern on that. One is that you talk about fruits and vegetables, and this is a really simple way that Paul teaches people to discern a bit on that. Um, and tell me if you agree with this, but it's pretty easy. Below ground vegetables, anything that grows in the earth is going to be very starchy and a better source of carbs. So we're talking about tubers, we're talking about yams, sweet potatoes, purple potatoes, carrots. Anything that grows above ground is going to be more fibrous, more leafy, and less. It's still primarily, in terms of macronutrient uh, breakdown in most cases, or maybe all, I can't think of any other examples, is going to be uh, carbohydrates, but it's going to be much, uh, have a lower caloric density. It's going to have a lower caloric density. It's also more complex carbohydrates. So mm -hmm. remember when you're talking about carbohydrates, they all break down to glucose, fructose, and galactose. Mm -hmm. And the primary one is glucose. So uh, we talk about simple carbohydrates versus complex carbohydrates. The, the difference is a simple carbohydrate might have one or two sugar molecules in it. A, a complex carbohydrate can have dozens or hundreds of, of sugar molecules in it. Mm -hmm. They still get broken down, but the difference is a complex carbohydrate takes your body much longer to break it down. So if you right. eat candy, which has all just straight sugar in it, you get this giant glucose hit and mm -hmm. your body goes, oh, wow, I got to do something about this and releases a ton of insulin. Right. You eat a complex- If you're on the couch. If you're on the couch. Right. Uh, if you eat a complex carbohydrate, that glucose is being released very slowly so you never have that big glucose hit to your system and you never get the insulin right, spike. Right. But both end up as the same thing. They end up as glucose in your system or fructose yeah. or galactose. And to further refine that point on complex carbohydrates, and please tell me if you agree with this or not, um, you know, there's some forms of those carbohydrates that we can make them more of a resistant starch. And one way to do that, for example, is you cook a baked potato, you let it cool for 10 minutes. Also, you don't overcook it to death. When you cook 
a sweet potato or a purple potato or a yam and you really cook it to death, you're turning it into, you're increasing the sugar content, right? So when we let our potatoes or our, our tubers in general cool a bit, we cook them less, let them cool before we eat them. And then we also add some fat. The fat will help offset the glycemic load of that uh, carbohydrate. So the point being is if you want to refuel for after your hard ride and you want to fuel the next day and you haven't been riding for four hours, you don't really want a, a dinner that contains a lot of sugar. So when you eat a piping hot potato that's been baked to death and you sprinkle brown sugar on top of it, you're kind of you're, you're upregulating the sugar impact or the potential glycemic load and thus insulin response of that food. Is that accurate? Yeah, I actually can't speak to all of that. I'm not certain part of that's because uh, I, so here's my paleo diet perspective. I think potatoes, white potatoes uh, are, so sweet potatoes actually aren't a potato, mm-hmm. uh, but potatoes are one of the most unhealthy things you can eat. You're talking about like a russet, right? Yeah, so yeah. I, I think. So basically I, I just avoid them, so I don't know a ton about them. Why, why are they so unhealthy? Because the glycemic load is too high? Yeah, so they are one of the, so... When you talk about the glycemic index, and I'm actually glad you said glycemic load. I'm more on the glycemic load, Mm -hmm. but we'll just go with the glycemic index here. Uh, Basically, this is how much it spikes you. It's a measure of how much it spikes your your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the benchmark is uh, just straight glucose. Right. And everything's compared to straight glucose. Uh, Potatoes are one of the few that is on par Right. Just straight glucose. Bread is actually a little above straight glucose. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it really spikes your blood sugar. Are we talking about like Wonder Bread or does it really matter? White breads. You know, I yeah. think uh, your... your uh, Bagels. Yeah. Stuff like that. Those sorts of things. Your, your, your simpler white breads, yeah. Or, or I think some of your other breads aren't quite as high, but they're still very high. Okay. Uh, there's also a lot of compounds in potatoes that are just unhealthy for you. Potatoes are very high in saponins. Mm-hmm which you just don't want to be consuming much of. What's so, a saponin? Saponin is, so quite literally, it's the, the Latin word for soap. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are soaps. But I like to be clean. Why don't I want yes. to eat soap? So what does a soap do? Uh, it breaks down lipids, yep. fats on your skin. So when you use soap on your skin, you're basically just breaking down all these lipids and getting them off of your body because uh, water and lipids don't, like one another so just trying to to run water on you it's not going to get anything that's that's lipid based off of your your body mm-hmm. so that's where soaps come in they break down the lipids so then the the water can wash it off you your whole digestive tract the outer layer is what's called the glycocalyx and there's this lipid bilayer on top of all of it that is highly protective of your gut uh, because most bacteria, viruses, um, molecules can't get through that lipid barrier. Mm -hmm. So the problem is when you eat saponins, they do exactly what soap does on your skin. They break down that layer. And they break down that barrier, punch holes in it, and allow things that you don't want to have access to your epithelial cells have access to your epithelial cells. We're making holes in the tight junction, right? Is that fair? Not holes in the tight junctions, but holes in the lipid barrier above. That, okay, that allow things that. to get okay. access okay. to to the tight junctions to the to the epithelial cells, so it's it's not a good thing. Now, saponins actually do have some anti-cancer properties, mm. uh, but I still wouldn't recommend consuming a lot. Them. Potatoes okay. are high in saponins. The food that is the highest that we know of in saponins is, is quinoa. 
Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I would not touch that stuff but with a ten foot pole. He's in, in quinoa's a it's a grass though, isn't it? No, it's a grain. It is a grain. Of grains. I, okay, I'm mistaken about that. So what I'm thinking of when I think of this intestinal epithelium, or sorry, what was the other term you used? The glyc. So there's a glycocalyx. That's it, above the epithelium. Well, so it's hard to to do this without showing pictures, but maybe we'll find a good link. Uh, basically, think of it as the the cells in your uh, digestive tract. They're not smooth. If if you do a microscopic image of them, they actually have all these little fingers, mm -hmm. which ex increases uh, the surface area that's exposed to the, the the gut. Right. So that's your glycocalyx, but it is surrounded by this lipid layer. Yep. That is very important. That's very protective. Right. So I'm visualizing the scene in the first Guardians of the Galaxy when Ronan's descending upon the planet. I can't remember the name of it to kill everybody and. The ships all come together and lock and form, yeah. form a blockade, right? And then, of course, Ronan's evil and he uses the purple stone. I can't able remember to which blow one them to, all up. So, so there's a saponin for you, right? Ronan is a saponin. Saponin's a Ronan to your gut. So yep. there's your visual people. Um, so I, I could show this to you. This is a, a visual of it. Okay. Simplified, but kind of there's your all those little fingers are your glycocalyx. Yep. And then this is that lipid bilayer that protects from a lot of nasty things getting access to the epithelial cells. Okay. We so send us a link to that and we'll, we'll you, drop that in the show yeah. notes. Thanks. You don't want to punch holes in that, basically. Right, 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 right. Okay. Okay, cool. So that's one example of where we're at with your, some of your foods that you consume yep. when you're getting ready for a hard training day. And then on the bike, back to your, you said you like candy. So that's whenever we eat on the bike, we want to be motivated to consume a lot of calories, especially if you're training hard. So part of that equation is finding foods that you like to eat. If, yes. if you know, we tell you, I mean, you could make an argument, a saponins aside that because potatoes spike glu blood glucose so well, I have seen old school guys riding around with a baked potato in their back pocket. Maybe not the worst food in the world from a caloric standpoint to have in your back pocket. Again, saponins aside, but, um, point being is when you're training really hard, you're doing a big old giant ride with a bunch of climbing and whatever, gut issues aside, it, there's almost a rule that when the engine's running hot enough, the furnace is really cranked, you can throw almost anything in there and it'll get converted to what it needs. Now, you got to take that statement with some, that doesn't mean you want to eat a pepperoni pizza necessarily, right? You don't. And I've had a bad experience with that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Uh other thing to remember, so now, now we're getting really into the sports science. Uh, we talked about how your body, when you're exercising, is going to prioritize the muscles. So it's going to prioritize fuel to the muscles. Mm -hmm. It's also going to prioritize blood to the muscles. Mm -hmm. So going back to looking at this from an evolutionary perspective, we did not evolve around sports. We evolved in, in terms of our, our fitness really evolved around hunting and running away from animals trying to eat us. Or perhaps other tribes trying to. Right. Right. So generally, when, our, when we are going really hard and hurting, our bodies are not thinking, boy, I'm winning this bike race or whatever it happens to be. Right. Your body's thinking, man, that is a really big lion chasing me right now. It is a sympathetic, uh, an event of significant yeah. sympathetic stress. So your body is going to prioritize everything possible to make sure you can get away from that lion. So all the resources are going to go to those working muscles. And your body's response is, at this particular moment, worrying about digestion is not my top priority. 
Right. Because I'm trying to not get eaten. Mm-hmm. I don't care about eating right now. Uh, so blood f- is shunted away from the gut. A lot of fuels are shunted away from the gut. And the gut can shut down. When you go really hard, it's going to shut down completely. But mm-hmm. when you are in a big race, it's not going to function as well. Mm-hmm. So putting something in your gut that's really hard to digest isn't going to go very well. So that's, again, why when you're in a sport, an event, I'm, I'm going to say, even though I'd say when you're sitting on a couch, don't eat simple sugars. Right. When you're in the middle of a race, that's probably about all you're going to be able to deal with. Mm-hmm. The heart of the race, right? Yep. Do you think there's a relationship between how riders process their sympathetic and parasympathetic load on the bike? Meaning, I think this is this is core to a lot of issues. Like, okay, what makes a world-level cyclocross racer able to be able to ride at maximal effort but still gracefully descend a super muddy, nasty technical rutted slope and then jump off their bike and hurdle barriers and then jump back on without tripping, falling to pieces, crashing multiple times, etc. It's the their their engine and their nervous system are refined to the point where they can handle that load and that technical aspect of the sport simultaneously like that teeter-totter. But when we're beginning the sport, this is why we suck at it. We go over the crest of a climb in a cross-country race and we're so gassed that then we hit the first rock and double flat or fall over, right? So it's a negotiation of that stress. Do you think there's a relationship between, and maybe that maybe you have some science to back this up, maybe this is just conjecture, but do you think there's a relationship between how an athlete manages the balance of parasympathetic, sympathetic load at even race pace and their ability to digest certain foods? In terms of the managing the parasympathetic versus sympathetic, yeah, they're always in, in conflict. And... People who are new to racing dealing with those situations, the the sympathetic alarm bells are going to go absolutely insane. Mm-hmm. Where somebody who's very experienced are never really going to have that. They're going to have sympathetic activation, but they're able to find. So I actually read a whole book on this about there. There's this optimal point um, where you are going to perform at your best. If you are, if you don't activate enough, right, you're not going to perform very well because you're not alert. You're not mm-hmm. willing to go really hard. But if you overactivate. It's too much, and and yeah. What's the name of that? There's a curve that someone coined that term and studied that. I can't remember what it yeah. is. Yeah, you know what I'm talking I, about. Actually, if you, I have the book somewhere. Okay, uh, but it was a whole book on this, uh, and a, absolutely fascinating book. And yeah, there is a term, and I'm blanking on it right now because I, I read that would, book like ten years ago. If you get a chance to find it, I'll draft an email and send yeah. it to you. And reminder, the um, the the book that I read is actually no longer in print. It's hard okay. to find. We were talking about the types of carbohydrates you consume either off the bike to prepare for a race or on the bike. You're, you've said you're a fan of simple sugars, and, and that's <clears throat> all part of allowing your gut to do what it's going to do when blood is being shunted towards the muscles or prioritized to transport O2 and CO2 and deal with all the metabolic yeah. demands of exercise. I would say it's a necessity. I never mm-hmm. quite want to use the, fan, or the, the term a fan of. Okay. I've got a, I love my Swedish fish. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's like all these things. It's not good for you. Right. But when you're performing, yeah, in a race, you, you got to make some sacrifice and say, let's let's focus a little more on performance. It's part of our task in, that we've undertaken as endurance athletes to try to go fast on the bike, and we accept there are going to be certain consequences for that. If yep. we're adults and we accept the the full impact of those choices, then we offset those choices with other healthy behaviors that help us not go down a tube of 
yeah. uh, adult onset diabetes, right? So this is a problem, I think, for bike racers who are race under a heavy load for many years, and then they stop and they kind of eat the same way. They have a sugar addiction because they've been eating it. So that's so the thing I've seen. This is the issue. Continuing that diet when you're sitting on the couch. Yeah. So yeah. I, what I hated to see was all these people who were athletes and been kind of sold on all this stuff and you'd see them just sitting there on the couch or hanging out working drinking a gatorade going well this is healthy for me because it's designed for sports you go right it's designed to maximize your intake of sugars when you're in the middle of an activity off the bike no this is not healthy for you at all yep yeah agreed so what about keto though you've you've mentioned this a bit but what happens when someone decides they're going to go keto and they're racing? Are there different racing disciplines that you might say keto might be good for, or are you just think keto is a total pot of crap, or what's the deal? I do not think keto is a healthy diet. Okay. I do think there is some benefits to short-term uh, ketosis. Ketosis, and there's different ways you can do it without having to be so extreme. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are some health benefits for certain diseases. Certainly, if somebody is diagnosed with cancer, I'm going to tell them, experiment with, with a ketogenic diet. If mm -hmm. somebody is showing early onset Alzheimer's, I'm going to tell them to experiment with a keto diet. Some of that's probably because those people probably were eating a lot of simple carbohydrates, and it would mm -hmm. be good to get them away from that. But at some point, hopefully, they, they've overcome that, and you're going to push them towards something that's a little more balanced, less uh, less simple sugars. Yeah. Uh, but a keto diet in the long term uh, has a whole lot of nutritional deficiencies. Mm. So if you rank foods in terms of their nutritional density, uh, top of the list are uh, vegetables, fish, fruit. You're talking about the Andy score, right? Actually, we, we created one ourselves. I've oh, never seen Andy on the score. site. Okay. Yeah. So Dr. Cordain and I actually took the most common foods in all the categories and then did a nutrient analysis on them and, and ranked the different categories of foods oh, in terms of nutrient density. That list. Is that published on the paper? That's on our website. Okay, so we'll there's a whole article sure. on, on nutrient density. Okay. The issue is with a keto diet, you're essentially eliminating two of your most nutrient dense food groups. Mm -hmm. um, and when you do that, it is impossible to get all the, the, the nutrients that you need. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're going to be seriously deficient in in potassium so as potassium calcium i think zinc was one mm -hmm. uh we actually wrote a dr cordain wrote a whole article on this which we have uh magnesium was one uh, a lot of people don't know this but some of the most important ratios in your body are your sodium to potassium ratio yep your magnesium to calcium ratio yep. and your omega-3 to omega-6 fatty acid right, ratio. Right. Keto diet, you can do fine on the, the omega-3 to omega-6, but you are killing your magnesium to calcium ratio. You're also killing your potassium to, to sodium ratio. And those Which has have, to do with the regulation of water in and out of the cells, right? So do, Yeah, that's one part. The, there are many ways in which the sodium-potassium ratio has a huge impact on our body. Right. Sodium... Uh, so this goes down a whole nother wormhole, but um, read a ton of research on this, and the evidence is excess sodium has a whole bunch of health consequences. We, we need to keep our sodium low. Mm -hmm. Potassium can really help to offset a lot of the negative consequences of sodium. So, and, and look, so typical hunter-gatherers, I'm doing this off the top of my head, I'm never good at doing these numbers off the top of my head, 
but their diet was about 10 to 1 potassium to sodium. Mm -hmm. Typical Western diet is 2 to 1 sodium to potassium. Similar ratio changes in the omega-3 to omega-6. Yes. Yeah, except some are actually worse. You can look at the, when you look at the breakdown of, of, trans fatty acids or fatty acids in nuts and common fatty foods, the omega-6s are off the chart, right? And then yeah. you add processed foods and hydrogenated oils yeah. into that equation and a lot of meat and the ratios just get skewed yeah. way out of out of whack. Most of your common vegetable oil is very high in omega-6. Yeah. So the sodium to potassium, uh, I get really worried about with people on a keto diet. Um, Another interesting thing is that has a much bigger impact on bone health than, than calcium consumption. Mm. This is, again, another wormhole, but I have yet to find a study showing significant benefits of people who have osteoporosis taking calcium. Mm -hmm. Little bits, but minor effects, often no effect. Mm -hmm. Now, there are multiple studies now showing that you take osteoporotic women, take them off a calcium supplement, put them on a potassium supplement, they start regrowing bone. Interesting. Because yeah. sodium is acidic. Uh, so if you're eating a lot of sodium, you're, you're acidifying your blood. What's the best source of base in your body? Bones. Right. Calcium in your bones. Yep. Your body starts leaching calcium from the bones. To deal with all the... To deal with the acidity. The acidity. And so potassium is the better way mm -hmm. to balance this out. And I won't go into the whole mechanism. It's a fairly complex mechanism. So yeah, the, multiple studies now showing you you increase mm -hmm. potassium in your diet and you improve bone health far more than calcium. Yeah. Um, I know, I don't want to go down the carnivore rabbit hole, but I know you guys have interviewed Saladino, but he made a comment recently that made me think about that. I think it's related to that potassium, um, calcium, sodium relationship. And he was talking about how so many people are supplementing with zinc right now because of COVID and how zinc levels can throw off. I think he said it was your potassium levels can be really low. Is there a relationship there that you know of? That I haven't heard. I'd have to look okay. into that. Yeah. So I'd have to see that. Anyway. Yeah, he actually... I don't agree with him on everything. We certainly had a, a mm -hmm. pr pretty healthy debate on his show. Uh, but he certainly does his research. He I'll does. give him credit for that. Yeah. Um, you know, th there's a few places where I, I would say he, he's misinterpreted the research, and, and that's what our, our conversation was about. But mm -hmm. there's a lot of things he said where I go, yeah, that's that. You, you've got a lot of good backing there. There's some good science behind yeah. that. And so just so people have the frame on that, Paul Saladino is a proponent of the carnivore diet, which is basically like liver animals. And now he's eating a little bit of honey and some figs. And that's it. That's literally it. He's got a whole thing about how vegetables basically don't have teeth and claws. So they have no way to run away from you or defend themselves. So they produce chemicals that are toxic yep. to the body. And, and I know you and Dr. Cardane feel differently about that philosophy on the whole. Do you want to just comment briefly on that vegetables? Yeah, good for no, you or not thing? Um, so he is using an argument that, that is a valid argument. It's one of the main arguments we use against uh, grains, which is, yeah, plants can't run away. They can't fight. They have to have a way to protect themselves. They mm -hmm. don't want you eating their um, reproductive materials. So they do this by having a lot of toxic chemicals that will make you think twice about eating it again. And if, if you don't believe me, Go and eat a piece of raw wheat. Right. You'll be very sick. Um, or a raw bean, a kidney yep. bean. Yeah. Yeah. So 
the argument is where is the law? So the, the other side is you look at fruits, fruits evolve very differently. They basically said, we're actually going to, so the plants that grow fruits basically said, we're going to create something that's very tasty, that's going to be appealing to you, but our seed is going to be indigestible. Right. So we want you to eat the fruit because mm-hmm. then you are going to go somewhere else, plant that seed, mm-hmm. plant it with a whole bunch of fertilizer. Yeah. So that that's another solution. So that's one of the reasons uh, we've been big proponents of fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had that discussion with Dr. Saladino, and, and he since then has been saying, yeah, fruits in the diet are, are okay. Mm-hmm. The The question is vegetables. And his argument is uh, vegetables have some of these toxic chemicals too uh, be, because, again, you're eating the reproductive material, and they don't want you to do that because right. it's killing them. Right. Uh, there is probably some valid arguments of that. And I, I don't quite know where, where the line is. Mm. Um, you know, I used to be very much really focused on vegetables, eat fruit sparingly. With the research I've read in that conversation with him, I've been kind of leaning towards a, a little you know, more, fruit. more fruit. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, yeah, no, it, it is an interesting conversation. The, the chemicals we have focused on are really your your lectins and your saponins. Yep. That's the that's the category of chemicals that particularly grains use to make you sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, now here's here's a really interesting thing for you. When I was doing my thesis, we had a, an immunologist on my thesis committee to make sure I was getting my immunology right. Uh, and, and we were having this conversation with him, and he was of the well, this is crazy. Grains are good for you. Why would you ever say this? Mm. And Dr. Cordain started naming off, say, you're an immunologist, I I bet you know a few of these chemicals, and started naming off a few lectins, Mm -hmm. but the chemical names. Mm -hmm. And the immunologist on my my committee went, oh, yeah, no, I've got those on my shelf. Mm -hmm. He goes, those things are really powerful. We're we're like, how so? And he's like, so we talked about back in the 90s, they discovered that lectins are really good uh, carriers for, for medicine. So you're always, you have this issue of getting past that gut barrier. Right. So you consume medicine. This is why they often have to give you injections, because most things you consume it, it can't get past the gut barrier. Lectins are amazingly effective at getting by all the barrier defenses and getting into circulation. So they're like armored vehicles. Right. And they can carry things with them. Mm -hmm. So in the 90s, they started studying lectins as carriers for medicine. Uh, And... There's a ton of research, and then it all shut down. And we were looking into this and finally found it. So Dr. Cordain discovered this. Uh, it was shut down because basically the FDA said, this stuff is so powerful, we can't approve it for human consumption. Hmm. So <laughs> my, my, the immunologist my my committee was uh, talking about that. And then uh, Dr. Cordain goes, do you know where those lectins that I just mentioned came from? He goes, that was a peanut lectin. That hmm. was a, a wheat lectin. These right. were all lectins that exist in plants. Mm-hmm. And you just saw like a jaw dropped. He's like, I, I never thought about that. He never but, made that connection before. Like, wow. Yeah. And, and here the FDA was saying, we can't approve these chemicals because they are they have too powerful an impact on our immune system. Interesting. Yeah. And that's, so by, by research on wheat, it's anti-nutrient, it's lectin and, and other chemical content is just at a level that I haven't seen in any other any other plant. Okay. 
So at its ability to get around our our digestive barrier mm -hmm. and inflame the immune system mm -hmm. is extraordinary. So in your opinion, true or false, are all humans ultimately wheat or gluten sensitive? In a, in a deleterious way? Is that a blanket statement you can make? Everyone, it's just sort of a question of how much? So here's the statement know? I'll make that, that I'll get attacked for, but I'm, I'm going to say it this strongly. If wheat had never existed, and then it was introduced as a food right now, mm -hmm. and they did the research on it, knowing everything we know about immunology and, and these anti-nutrients, mm. I don't think it would get approved for human consumption. Okay. That's a pretty good statement. I like that. It's All a right. bold statement. Now, the argument, the, the counter argument that people, so nobody is arguing that if you ate wheat raw, it would make you extraordinarily sick. Right. That's no one. So the, the counter argument that we get a lot, and I think it's a good counter argument, but there's been research on this now, is, well, we, we, we in the cooking process and in, in the preparation process, we remove all these anti-nutrients. They're, they're basically destroyed. Mm -hmm. um, the same discussion you have about ferment, about cooking beans for... Right. Same thing about yeah. beans. Unfortunately, they have done that research and showed, yes, most of it is destroyed. But not all of it. But not all of it. And the small amount that is left is still shown to have very significant immunological effects. Particularly, one of the compounds in wheat is something called wheat germagglutin, WGA. Mm -hmm. It is a, a heterodimer lectin. It has 10 binding spots. So it could basically bind molecules in your gut. So think of it as having 10 arms. It'll grab things in your gut, mm -hmm. bind to them. Then it'll, it can get past that lipid bilayer. Mm -hmm. It can get access to the glycocalyx and actually go right through epithelial cells and get into circulation, bypass the entire right. uh, digestive uh, immune system, uh, and then bind to what's called the basolateral uh, side of the epithelial cells, so the side of the epithelial cells that faces internally. Mm -hmm. uh, then it can pr basically uh, activate the immune system and promote an immune response and takes very little WGA to do this, to activate a very strong immune response. And then plus it bound all these particles in your gut that you don't want to get into circulation has now brought them into well, circulation. Right. So I want to spell that out for people so they understand. I mean, what you're talking about is, is leaky gut. This is the same. This is leaky gut. Correct? This is not leaky gut. Oh, okay. I'm correct. Wheat okay. has a whole way of promoting leaky gut that I can tell you about as well. Oh, okay. This is independent. So wheat like I said, it's absolutely amazing. It has all these different ways of really messing with the immune system that yeah. it doesn't pick just one way. It does it a whole bunch of ways. 100%. So WGA, nothing to do with leaky gut. You okay. can maintain all the tight barriers. Instead of trying to go between the barriers of the epithelial cells, WGA goes right through the epithelial cell. Okay. Now, there's a... I don't want to go too deep in the weeds. I'm probably going to go into some of this. Um all these epithelial cells have a smaller immune cell called dendritic cells. Dendritic cells have long arms. So dendritic cells will sit inside the, the epithelial cell bound to the side of the, the cell that faces the, the gut. And these little arms will poke through the epithelial cell, mm -hmm. reach into your gut, 
and start sampling things in there. So grab this, grab that. And so then literally feeling out what's in there to, feel to it out. figure out if it's good or bad. And then report. So it ha- literally has an on-off switch. Mm-hmm. And just it'll keep reporting back to the immune system. That's food. That's normal bacteria. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. When it identifies something that makes it go, uh-oh. Trouble. This is trouble. Yeah. The on switch goes and it starts to activate an immune response. Yeah. WGA can interact with dendritic cells and flip that switch and tell them, get the immune system going. So, okay. And then because it's brought those particles and so. So this is the upregulation of a cascade of immune response where the system is overactive. This this is one way, right? So it basically gives the dendritic cells a false alarm. Mm -hmm. The immune system looks for, so the immune system has a way of identifying things. These are called antigens. It's a fancy term. All it just means is a part of anything. So basically, uh, you have antigen-presenting cells. Dendritic cells are one. Macrophages are another. Mm -hmm. Uh, They go and just start sampling everything. And they're indiscriminate. They will sample your own cells. They will sample bacteria. They'll sample food, Mm kind of chew up a bit of it, and then take a small portion of it, which is called the antigen, and present that antigen to your T cells, which are the intelligent part of your immune system. And then the T cells have an ability to identify it. And they'll just go, most of the time they'll just go, yeah, food, self, don't Mm -hmm. worry about it, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Uh, Even actually when they identify something as foreign, there's what's called a second signal. So there needs to be a a, something else saying there is enough of this antigen um, or this is really bad. We need more. To produce this, the, 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 the second signal that the T cells go, damn, we got an issue, mobilize, yeah. we got to go fight this. Right. Um, so WGA basically gets the, the, the dendritic cells to activate that alarm. So basically kind of to simplifying all this, but to give that kind of second signal. To falsely activate that right. signal, right. Now remember, WGA has brought in a bunch of... of particles with it, basically antigens with it, because okay. it has the 10 binding sites. So it's got the dendritic cells to go, alarm bells, here's the second signal. Yeah. Now here's all these antigens that have been inappropriately brought into your body that T cells can now identify. Right. And you are going to get this immune response when the one is not needed. Yeah. That's one way. Another way wheat does this is... Um, there's something in wheat called amylase trypsin inhibitors, mm-hmm. which have nothing to do with, gl- with gluten. They're oh, independent okay. of gluten. Unfortunately, we have raised wheat to have much more, so it's called the amylase trypsin inhibitors, but just ATI for short, uh, to have much more ATI content in it because ATI is actually a great pesticide, natural pesticide. Mm-hmm. So 60, 70 years ago, before we understood anything about the immune system, we went, Oh, look, great. It's got this natural pesticide in it. Let's breed it to have more. Mm-hmm. Not knowing it also really messes with our immune system. ATIs also bind to dendritic cells and, and flip the switch. Okay. Uh, in terms of the leaky gut syndrome, so as you pointed out, all these epithelial cells, they bind very closely to one another. So it's called tight, tight junctions. Mm-hmm. Nothing can get between those cells that allows... 
the the whole system to be very selective, keep reaching and going, okay, this is good, this is good, uh, and let just the, the food particles, the things you want to get in, get in. So remember, there's a whole bunch of bacteria in your gut. It's healthy for you is if it stays in your gut, mm-hmm. very unhealthy if it gets in through the system. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I read multiple studies from well-known immunologists saying they, they really think, you know, we think of our immune system as its primary function is, is fighting viruses. But 75% of our immune cells live around the gut. And there, there is this belief that uh, actually most of our immune system evolved around the bacteria in our gut to keep it under control. Yeah. To keep it in the gut. So that when you eat a piece of dog hair or a fly lands on your yeah. sandwich and poops on it or whatever, it's not yep. a deal breaker. Like right? I said, all that good bacteria is good as long as it's in your gut. It's bad right. if it gets into the system. Right, right. And look, bacteria is getting from your gut into your system thousands of times per day. Yes. So your immune system of the gut is just very good at going, no, I'm going to stop you, stop mm-hmm. you, stop if you. If it's functioning properly. If it's functioning properly. Right. And wheat is amazingly effective okay. at preventing. Okay. So I actually, in my, my, my thesis, I identified there's three ways uh, to cause the digestive immune system to stop functioning well. One is to break down the, the tight junctions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, the second one is to um, cause that inappropriate inflammation. So mm-hmm. it causes the alarm bells to go when there is nothing to be alarmed about. Uh, and the third one is uh, a- antigen exposure. Mm-hmm. So I've just explained to you a couple ways that it causes antigen exposure. Just explained to you a couple ways that um, it uh, causes the alarm bells to go off inappropriately. Mm-hmm. Another way, uh, weed also has another. So there's good and bad bacteria. Bad bacteria, gram-negative bacteria, has a, has a tell. It has something on it called lipopolysaccharide, LPS. Mm-hmm. Um, our bodies have a quite, our mucus has a quite robust system for identifying LPS. Because we look for that, as soon as we see that, we go, bad bacteria is in the system. Do something about this. Right. So it's always looking for LPS. Um the let's see if I could remember this. There's um, another interpretation of the LPS abbreviation as well. Little pieces of yes, well, I'm not gonna, <laughs> actually quite literally. Right, right. So I never thought about that. Yeah. Um, we have a quite evolved system for identifying LPS. There, there's two identifiers on immune cells. One is called TLR4, mm-hmm. and the other one is called CD14. Uh, so whatever those are activated, immune system goes, okay, bad bacteria, we got to do something about this. Uh, wheat has a molecule in it that's called WLPS. It actually mimics LPS. Mm. It's not quite as strong as real LPS, but if that can get into the system, our body still identifies it as LPS. Man, it sounds like wheat is just this hydra of things that just messes right. with all the gut balance and chemicals. Wheat also has this remarkable ability. So this is where I'm going to get into a whole bunch of terms. So through IL-15 or was it IL-15 or CD-15, uh, but wheat actually has a way of activating this is where I don't want to go into the details and I'm a little, it's been mm-hmm. a little bit since I've read all that research again. Uh, but wheat can activate TLR4 and CD-14 without LPS. So right. it has that way of setting off those. 
gram-negative bacteria, bad bacteria is here, do something mm-hmm. without actually having that, the, bacteria that, present. that LPS. So that's the whole setting off the alarm bells, bad antigens. Mm-hmm. Um, the final way that you can disrupt the immune system is, is, is leaky gut. Mm-hmm. So there's a chemical called zonulin that our bodies can release that breaks down the tight junctions. So we actually cause ourselves to, to, to open up the tight junctions. There is a reason for this. It is an emergency reaction where if we get a bacterial overload that has gotten past the barriers, where our bodies go, I've got to do something about this or I'm going to die, mm-hmm. you get a very dramatic release of zonulin. And the idea is then all these fluids are flushed into the gut and out your system. So this is, you're going to get diarrhea, you're going to right. feel awful. Right. But all that, hopefully all that bacteria is basically flushed out. So it's the, an emergency the, evacuation. Right. The, the opening of those tight junctions by zonulin isn't to let things in. Uh-huh. It's to get everything out. Ah, uh, right. Um, so obviously that bacterial overload causes a release of zonulin. We know only one other thing that causes a release of zonulin and that's gliadin, which is found in gluten. And this happens in everybody. Mm. This is not just celiacs. It's more pronounced than celiacs. Also, I've seen some signs that it's more pronounced in people with diabetes. But it happens in everybody. So you know, a little bit you're going to be okay with. But if you get a ton of exposure to gliadin, it's going to cause that release of zonulin. And you're going to get those opening of the tight junctions. And that's what we mean by leaky gut. And unfortunately, in this case, what's going to happen is all sorts of things in your gut, including gliadin, WGA, and some of these things from wheat, are then going to get into your system and get into circulation and start really messing with your immune system. That's a, that's a big list. It is a big list. So the final component to this that's important to understand, I talked about T cells, which direct your immune system. There's a very two very important types of T cells. One was only identified in 2006. Uh, so that's called Th17 cells, which I'll get to in a second. A more important one is called T regulatory cells. So you always think of the immune system as, as responding to things. T regulatory cells do the exact opposite. Their job is to identify things and then tell the immune system, relax. Mm-hmm. So T regulatory cells actually identify self. So when an antigen is presented, that self T regulatory cells goes, "That's me, don't worry." Mm-hmm. Most most identif- T cells only identify foreign antigen. T regs are the only ones that actually identify self antigens. Uh, they have a variety of functions. So there's a whole lot of T regulatory cells at the gut. Most of the time, most of the time, they dominate and just say, "Relax." So even if a little bit of bacteria gets in. They're the ones who are going to say, it's a little bit, macrophages can deal with this, some of our other uh, innate immune cells can deal with this, don't worry about it, we don't need to set off a systemic response. Mm -hmm. TH17 are remarkably damaging cells. So when they were first identified, there was a bit of a question of, why in the world do we have these? Like, they just mess with us. I am not an expert on them, but some of the interesting research that I've read, by the way, is that uh, there seems to be an indicator that that T regulatory cells are, are quite malleable. 
One of the beliefs that I read about is that T regulatory cells can actually convert into TH17 cells and then convert back, Hmm. which is quite fascinating. So what they believe TH17, the reason they exist is they were designed specifically to deal with an excess flow of, of bacteria getting into getting past the digestive barrier getting into the system this is SIBO right what's that is this SIBO or is this different than SIBO SIBO small intestinal bacterial overgrowth yeah yeah sorry okay. I'm horrible with acronyms okay um so if you have that kind of overgrowth so like I said bacteria getting in all the time most of the time body goes what are two bacteria bit. right no big deal we, we can deal with that when it gets excessive that's when TH17 cells come in and go, my job, I'm going to deal with these. Mm-hmm. And they're very damaging, but their bodies basically go, got to deal with this bacterial overgrowth. So we're going to damage ourselves, but a short term, take care of the bacterial uh, infection, mm-hmm. and then we'll shut down the TH17 cells. That's the way it should function. Mm-hmm. When things are not functioning, so one way that things cannot function well is if TH17 are constantly active. So that's that chronic inflammation that we talk about. You get this particular type of TH17 cell that becomes very damaging. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that TH17 cell will then migrate from the gut and go into circulation and do all sorts of harm in our body. And since we've identified TH17 cells, they've now shown that inappropriate TH17-based inflammation precedes cancer. Mm. precedes every single autoimmune disease, um, precedes heart disease. Mm -hmm. Like almost every chronic disease we know about, there is now research showing that, yep, it's preceded by inappropriate TH17 inflammation. Mm. And all those things I was just telling you about with wheat ultimately promote TH17 and keep it constantly active. So those, what I told you, those those dendritic cells flip that alarm switch. Yeah, they're the ones that say TH17, get to work. Right, right. So that is okay. one of the reasons I say nobody should be eating wheat, because it, you know, little bits here and there are fine, but if you're eating a lot of wheat, that's when you whip up the chronic response. You're that, keeping that yeah. chronic inflammation. That yeah. you're keeping TH17 activated. And this, this is the thing. It doesn't happen right away. And this is why people, everybody goes, well, I eat it. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But then when you're in your mid-40s, you start having heart disease. Right. Or you get cancer and you go, well, that had nothing to do. I've been eating wheat for years. It's a cumulative effect. It, it's an accumulative effect. It takes a effect, long, yeah. Right. This is the hardest thing for humans to see is the long-term effects. We always right. want to go do intervals and see our FTP go up the next day. It's not how it works, right? Yep. So, okay, cool. Thanks for walking us through all that stuff. That's fascinating. Maybe we can make this uh, a little more practical in terms of how people can understand this. What are some of the symptoms? If someone's eating wheat and they think they're they're giving you the, Trevor, I'm fine. I had ding-dongs yesterday after my ride. And this morning I got up and had two pieces of toast. And every morning I get up and I have my toast and I have my pizza for lunch or my, my Jimmy John's or whatever. Oh, don't get me started on Jimmy John's. And I'm fine. I have no issues. What are the symptoms that they're missing? What, are, what do all these cascade of all these biochemical effects in our gut have that actually show up in daily life? So symptoms. Or That's where it gets tough. Because you've been eating your whole life. That's, again, it's 
well, I feel fine. Well, you might have been experiencing the symptoms the whole time. How do you... It's because your baseline isn't fine, but you think right. it is. Yeah. That, that's all you know. Right. Uh, and again, if you think getting heart disease and cancer and autoimmune disease and all these things when you're in your 40s is normal, is normal, then you are fine. Right. Uh, you know, this is probably exaggeration. A lot of people eat this and, and truly are fine. They, they can handle it better. Uh, what I tell people is eliminate it from your diet for six months. Mm -hmm. See how you feel. And, and the response I get all the time is, I can't believe how much better my energy is. I can't be believe how much better I'm sleeping. Mm -hmm. So that's where I go, now you're feeling fine. Mm -hmm. You've just never actually had that experience. That baseline. And then do you encourage people to test that after they've not had wheat for six months just to make sure they yes. can rebound? And, oh, yeah. No, I'm very big on if you... Elimination diets can be very effective to find what affects you, but you can't just eliminate and go, well, here's the evidence. You then have to reintroduce it right. and see if it causes the, the, the negative effects again. So if you get off of wheat and you're feeling really good, mm -hmm. then try eating it again. And if you start feeling lousy, now you know. Mm -hmm. and now you know what true fine is. And what's our minimum amount of time you would say you would recommend people eliminate wheat to really- Six months. Six months is the minimum? Yep. Look, I'll give you my very short version. I've told this story a bunch of times, but I stopped racing at the pro level because I was getting sick all the time. And I, again, I was in my late 30s and went, it's age. Mm -hmm. uh, I took Dr. Cordain's class and I actually was furious with this class. I thought everything he said was full of it mm -hmm. and tried to prove him wrong. And in the process of proving, trying to prove him wrong, just kept going, well, that makes sense and that makes sense. And ended up going on a paleo diet and I stopped eating wheat. I was 39 at the time. I was a full-time student, had a coaching business, and I was started training better and healthier than I, I had in years. And I stopped being sick all the time mm -hmm. and had one of my best years at the age of 40. And I was right top 20 in America at the age of 40, mm -hmm. and that was entirely the diet. Yeah. So that that's where I look and go, that's my fine. Okay. I had never known what fine was before. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. It's so pervasive in our diet. And just to be clear, that elimination diet you're speaking of is specifically talking about wheat. Do you think it's a confounding variable potentially if people, um, they get rid of wheat, but then they're desperately searching for those muffin-like substances? So what yeah. do you think about gluten-free items, uh, you know, baked goods? Obviously, that doesn't, that's not in the spirit of the paleo diet where refined foods are not really part of our ancestral diet, right? This is the question we get all the time yeah. and debate it and go, well, how do I make my muffins? How do I make my pancakes? And, right. and this is where I, I feel like I have to be a bit of a jerk. I go, look, if you want to eat healthy, if you want to eat truly paleo, no, there is no substitute. You don't eat those things. There's no gluten-free cookie. And unfortunately, there were some deceptive studies that came out mm. against the gluten-free movement the, the the titles of these studies were things like gluten-free foods are, are less healthy than gluten-containing foods. Mm -hmm. And that was because they were comparing gluten-free cake versus gluten-containing yeah. cake. And I will agree, the gluten-free cakes, when you look at how they're made, they're, they're, they're going for taste. They're not healthy. Taste and mouthfeel and texture and all these weird yeah. things. So they end up having like 18 flowers and all these gums. And, yeah, and it's kind of nasty. It's just like you know, that, um, what's that? burger that tastes like a the burger but impossible it, burger the impossible burger i looked at that that is a horrifyingly unhealthy thing right um agreed i i go look it, it, yeah there there is some evidence against red meat i'm not going to argue with that mm -hmm. 
uh, you don't want to eat red meat. Don't go this way. Just don't eat red meat. Right. Or eat a lot less of it, perhaps. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, have, your, don't have your burger. This is yeah. the same thing. Unfortunately, if you want to eat healthy, you got to change your diet. I eat a very simple diet. I eat a lot of fruits and vegetables. I eat my fruits plain. Mm-hmm. My vegetables, I most just saute them a bit. I don't eat a lot of cookies and cakes and these other things that go, well, they're gluten-free. They're good for me. No, they're not. Agreed. You're just replacing one food, which has wheat, which we've just unpacked extensively with another highly, highly processed food that's trying to be something very artificial. Yep. Yeah. It's not a good trade-off. Yep. Agreed. And I think it's really important that, look, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're horrified or you've got a sinking feeling in your stomach because you're super bummed out, I get it. Uh, My wife's an incredible baker. She made an amazing almond cake last night that doesn't have a ton of wheat in it. But it does have, it's like half a cup for the whole cake, but it's got wheat in it. And I'm not thrilled about the idea of giving up wheat for the rest of my life. I have experimented myself going wheat free at times and had very good results also. Um, And just to share a really quick story on that, since the dawn of time, I've had a, my right toe, my right big toe, the joint is always pretty much always sore and achy. And I went gluten-free for a few months and lo and behold, it was, it's exactly what you just described, Trevor, in that I never knew what my fine was. I've been living with a sore toe every time I get out of bed in the morning. It just makes creaky noises and hurts a little bit. It's not a big deal, but you get used to it, especially when you've been alive for 45 years. For the first time in my life, I had no pain or soreness in this joint. Yep. And I went, wow, that's really telling. It just moves better. Yeah. So if you're hearing this podcast and you're thinking, holy crap, my life is over. I can never have pizza again. Look, there's a balance in all things and you have to decide what the path is for you. If you're eating gluten or wheat, I will say four times a day or two times a day, and that's been your life for the last several decades. We're not saying no one's suggesting that you drop it cold turkey and completely reinvent your dietary life. Food is about more than just selecting macronutrients or food categories for optimal health. That said, strive for improvement, make better choices. We don't have to have everyone be an orthorexic monk and drop gluten or wheat forever for the, for the rest of their eternity existence. And you can, we're not saying you can never have pizza again, but we're saying consider the evidence, consider what Trevor has taught us today and take it to heart and make, make decisions. You know, maybe you don't need to eat as many ding-dongs. We are, so on the paleo diet side, very big on what we call the 85-15 principle. Mm. Your body can tolerate a certain amount. All that stuff I was explaining to you about wheat, it's not like you eat one piece of bread and that whole cascade that I just explained to you goes haywire. And you've got cancer and heart right. disease. Right. This is, again, why it's hard to associate because it mm. takes time. It takes constant repetition. So yep. if you are reducing, if you are eating less, there is a, a certain amount where your body can say, look, I can deal with this. Right. This isn't great stuff, but... I can handle this just fine. We built this whole digestive immune system to handle mm-hmm. things that we don't want. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it takes a more chronic load. So I'm I'm big in the 85-15. Look, I love pizza. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a pizza place underneath our office. I, I go down there every once in a while, but it's once every three weeks. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not every lunch. Good. That's great. That's great to hear. I think that'll help people a lot. Yeah. yeah. And let me tell you, I enjoy that pizza. I do too. We actually had... Uh, Pizzeria Locale just uh, earlier this week, and well, we do that stuff. about we do that about three or four times a year tops. But every once in a while, you got to enjoy it. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you when I, every once in a while I go down there, and they don't have my favorite 
slice of pizza down there and I just walk out. I go, if I'm doing this Not once every it. three weeks, <laughs> I'm waiting until I get exactly <laughs> what I want. <laughs> That's a great example. And then it's your treat, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to gonna take that hit, make it count. Exactly. Agreed. All right. Um, well, Trevor, I just wanted to quickly go over one last concept with you. And I think this is an interesting idea. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on it. I think there's a phenomenon now, you know, social media, everybody's talking about all the things they do. And you hear stories about how people went vegan and their energy levels skyrocketed and they felt amazing, right? Or they went carnivore and their energy levels skyrocketed and they felt amazing. Or they went keto. And what I've noticed, and I've got a hypothesis going in my head, and this is the part I'd like you to comment on, is that people, I think, sometimes aren't really clearly considering the context of their lives when they make these changes. And they also tend to think in terms of BFF, like forever Z's, meaning someone's on a standard American diet. They're eating basically crappy food. They're eating Taco Bell. They're eating Applebee's. They're eating, you know, Olive Garden, whatever, uh, Chipotle. And not all these foods are good or bad per se, but they're not, that diet on the whole is not amazing for you. And they decide they feel like crap, so they go vegan. Well, what are they doing fundamentally? They're simplifying their diet, assuming they're eating, we'll say, a good vegan diet, which means a lot more fruits and vegetables. What they're doing, they're cleansing their body of all this toxic crap that they've been ingesting in their Taco Bell. Yeah, your energy levels are going to go up in context of that. But over a long term, I think you would agree with me that a long enough timeline, most, not all, but most vegan or vegetarian people will start to have a decline in energy and they will be missing some nutrients, some critical nutrients from animal foods. I think the same thing could be said about people, especially endurance athletes. What do we live in? We live in the world of carbohydrates and simple sugars. Like we talked about, you eat, you know, your sweet fish on the bike and that's a habit, or we get off the bike and we're just used to shoveling massive amounts of carbs in our system to replenish our glycogen tanks before we go do the next day of our stage race or whatever. And that system in when athletes are not discerning enough about the simple sugars on the bike versus off the bike, they basically prep the grounds for some low-level symptoms of diabetes, adult-onset diabetes, and then they stop racing, and that's, that trend continues. Things can really escalate very quickly. What's a simple solution to that? Go keto. Why? Because you're going to feel amazing because when you start go from pancakes and pasta to avocados and fatty fish, your blood sugar is going to equalize. It's going to level. That doesn't mean it's a good long-term solution for you, Right? But it's a, it's a common pathway, in my experience, a modern pathway for endurance athletes, recovering endurance athletes, we'll say, to gravitate towards keto because they had so many years of blood sugar swings all the time. Now what they're doing is they're finding a diet instinctively. It's not a bad instinct that will help level that playing field. But that doesn't mean that keto is their forever Z's solution that's ideal. Would you? How do you feel about that whole thought process? Well, I'll start by saying... It is actually really hard to come up with a diet that is worse for us than a Western diet. Yeah. So whenever I see anybody, somebody take any sort of intention in their diet to improve it, I'm generally supportive because it's probably better. It's a step forward. Right. Yeah. Um, a vegan diet done right is, is dramatically better than the Western diet. Right. And so this is, again, all the research you have to be careful where they go, you know, we, we, we took people on a Western diet, we put them on X diet, they improved. Therefore, so therefore, this is the healthiest diet. No, right. it's better in the Western diet. Right. Uh, one of the things I like about the paleo diet concept is, and look, the criticism of the paleo diet concept I fully agree with is a lot of those foods that we ate 
during evolutionary times don't exist anymore. Right. We actually can't eat a real paleo diet. And their modern incarnation is arguably less nutrient dense, right. et cetera. Right. Yep. So, but what I like about the concept is instead of starting with a diet that is, we know, incredibly unhealthy for us, why not start with something close to what we evolved around, which we, we know is going to be healthy. And people argue with us, but I go, anybody who's a cat or dog owner, they're always trying to figure out, well, what did a cat, dogs naturally eat in wild? And that's right. what I want to emulate. Right. Why wouldn't we do the same with ourselves? Because mm. um, we're not cats or dogs. Right. But oh, feed ourselves something that we know is closer to what we evolved around and then modify from there makes more sense to me than let's see what little tweaks we can make to a diet that's causing chronic disease, diabetes, and all these yep. issues yep. that we know is horrible for us. That's wildly off what, yeah. Yeah, but going for that perspective, yeah. Somebody's eating typical Western diet and they go, I'm going to go vegan. I'm going to fully support that. Um, my issue with the vegan diet and keto diet and going with those approaches is I, I just always get concerned about diets that don't focus necessarily on, on what foods are healthy for you. It's a more of a process of elimination so, rather than... A, yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Look, paleo gets accused of that, but I always say the focus of paleo is what, are fo what foods are healthy for us mm -hmm. and eat those and eat them in more natural, raw forms. Mm -hmm. um, keto diet in particular, because it's just about eliminating carbohydrates, I get frustrated having these conversations with, with people who sit there and go, I eat really healthy. I eat a stick of butter every morning and <laughs> I don't touch fruit or vegetables. And I go, in what world is that healthy? Right. Like, listen to yourself. Yeah. And, and I know a lot of keto people who go, well, that is healthy. Mm -hmm. you go, no. Yeah. Sorry. That, that, you know, just think about what you learned in kindergarten. Yeah. So, you know, yes, we eliminate on the paleo diet, but here's the paleo diet. Vegetables, fruits, lean meats, fish, nuts. Mm -hmm. That is what you learned in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> vegan diet, people who do it right. And look, I do at some point want to come up. You know, I, I really admire people who do it for ethical reasons. Mm. Uh, I do at some point want to come up with a variation on the paleo diet for people who don't want to eat animal food. Interesting. Oh, if we have more time, I'd love to unpack that. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to have to do a ton of research. I will never say it is as healthy as an omnivore diet. Mm. And no no point ever during our evolution did any of our ancestors, at least the homo ancestors, uh, did they eat a entirely carnivore diet or entirely... entirely. Right. We have both molars and canines. <laughs> yep. And we're not ruminants. We don't have 12 stomachs. Right. right. We, we are designed to be omnivores. So right. unfortunately, like I fully get the ethical argument. I'll always support somebody on that. Mm. But the argument that getting rid of animal food completely is healthier for us, uh, I just don't buy that. Mm -hmm. So A, doing a vegan diet is very difficult. Uh, B, it has inher some inherent dangers. One of them that people don't talk a lot about, um, there, there's something in our bodies called homocysteine. We're always worried about cholesterol. Mm -hmm. There's a lot more research showing that uh, homocysteine uh, correlates with heart disease far more than cholesterol levels. Mm -hmm. uh, we produce homocysteine when we have insufficient, uh, there's what's called the folic acid cycle. It relies on folate, which you can get from, from vegetable sources, vitamin B6 and B12. You can only yep. get B12 from animal sources. Right. B6, there is uh, vegetable sources, but most of the, that, that form, the, the plant-based form of B6, has a pyridine ring attached to it, which makes it 
we can't use it with that pyridine ring. Not bioavailable. And so it's not bioavailable. Exactly. Yeah. Didn't want to go to the big terms. We can't remove that ring. So right. most of the B6 we get from plant sources, we can't use. Right. Um, so here's a question for you. Where are the highest rates of heart disease in the world? Hmm. It's uh, not the Middle US. America? <laughs> that would be my guess. No. India. Iowa. India. Do you know why? Because hmm. there's so many vegetarians. Veganism, vegetarian Vegan, yeah. is part of their their uh, that's part really of their interesting. Culture. I did. I definitely did not know that. I wouldn't have picked that for sure. Yep. And there, you could look mm. this research up. There's plenty of research showing contributions of a, a low quality vegan diet, right, to all the heart disease in, in uh, India. Now, people who do their research and are vegan and, and are careful and making sure they're supplementing with B12, yeah, can be fine. Yeah. But to do a vegan diet right is really hard because it's not quite how we were designed. Well, to do any of these extreme diets is hard. I mean, carnivore. You're eating only liver and animal products yeah. or vegan or keto to do any of them is a challenge, right? Agreed. So, Agreed. Yeah. Okay. Trevor, thank you so much for all your insight and wisdom and understanding and knowledge on this quite uh, nuanced and detailed topic. I really appreciate it. I Hopefully our listeners got a lot of good stuff out of your thoughts on that. We'll definitely put a link to your paper in the show notes if that's okay. People Absolutely. can go check that out if they want. I encourage people to check out thepaleodiet.com for lots of resources on uh, the paleo diet and their philosophy and all the things that they talk about there. Well, appreciate that. Yeah. But always fun talking to you, Coley. Thank so. you. Yeah, thanks a lot. We'll, uh, we'll do some more in the future, I hope. Attention, Space Monkeys, public service announcement. Really, technically, it's a disclaimer. You already know this, but I'm going to remind you that I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a doctor, so don't take anything on this podcast to constitute lawyerly or doctorly advice. Don't play either of those characters on the internet. Also, we talk about lots of things, and that means we have opinions. My guests' opinions are not necessarily reflective of the opinions of anyone who is employed by or works at Fast Talk Labs. Also, if you want to reach out, talk to me about things feedback on the podcast good bad or otherwise you may do so at the following email address info at cyclinginalignment.com that's all spelled just like it sounds which again is self-evident gratitude